Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, a podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner. With me, Bex. And me, Eason. And this is an episode all about It's Your Funeral. This is the 11th episode of The Prisoner, according to the original UK broadcast run. It's an interesting one, if only because some of its uniqueness comes from how choppy some of the episode actually feels. <laughs> As we always say, each episode of The Prisoner is very unique, and in this case, some of the uh, components of the uniqueness come from the way the episode has been put together, uh, the style of the plot. It doesn't necessarily feel like a standard episode of The Prisoner, <laughs> even though there is no such thing as a standard one. It has a it has a focus which is away from number six primarily, and is more about the village and how the village works. And it provides a very different perspective on the show, almost like it's trying to give us a view of how the village works, but from but from the villagers' perspective, uh, which I think is kind of a unique uh, viewpoint that's used in the series. Hmm. So before we get into discussing It's Your Funeral in detail, uh, we just wanted to catch everyone up on the Elstree event that we went to the weekend before last, which was the celebration of the life of Patrick McGowan. Yeah, it was a really fantastic event organised by the Unmutual website and Quite Media. Um, it was really good in terms of the guests it had. There were fantastic talks, um, some really cool displays and some good merchandise that was uh, that was available as well. It was really fun just to kind of hang out with lots of uh, Prisoner and also Magoon fans as well. Uh, get chatting during the breaks and kind of find out about how everyone came to uh, their interest in the Prisoner and Patrick McGowan. Yeah, and there was a screening of a really, really old uh, episode of a TV series called The Vice, I think it was, um, which is clearly a sort of half-hour thriller story of the week that featured McGowan playing a a kind of slightly villainous role. Um, And it it was a rather convoluted story about diamonds being stolen from a plane crash and then I think by the end of the episode pretty much everyone was either dead or in jail who was involved in it. Do you know what it kind of reminded me of later? It was A Simple Plan. Ah, the um, Sam Raimi movie. Yeah, the one with Bill Paxton and uh, Bridget Fonda and Billy Bob Thornton, mm-hmm. where they steal the money from the plane crash. <laughs> What's interesting about that show in particular was, although I'd never heard of it before, and it seemed a bit hokey at times as well, mm. um, it was strange that the minute he was on screen... You kind of got absorbed in it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was really, like it was really fun to see things like that. And also there were all these retrospectives of, I think there was footage from every uh, existing piece of film or TV uh, that uh, McGill was involved in, like mm. short, short clips of things. And it was remarkable to find out about how much stuff he was in, how he came to do all these different things. Some of it, you know, varying wildly in quality. But I like the fact that one central thing that came out of it was, you know, when he was in something, he did kind of give it his all, even if yeah. <laughs> even if the rest of the production was was not up to scratch. Um, you know, he always brought brought something to it, and I think it's kind of interesting to find out a little bit more in terms of his filmography about you know why he made some of the choices he made. Mm. Um, but that's not to say it wasn't also great in terms of just showing us all the really big highlights from his career, mm. because although uh, we came to this from the perspective of uh, the prisoner. There, there's been just a tremendous number of uh, of really good film and television roles that he's been involved in, and uh, as an event, it was yeah, it was really fun, as we said, and a nice fitting celebration of Patrick McGowan in the 90th year that would have been his birth. 
So we understand that uh, Quote Media and The Mutual are going to be releasing a DVD of the event, although probably not with the uh, the Vice on it, because I think uh, that was a special screening. Um, but there's going to be more information about that later on when Rick Davey gives us his news roundup. Yeah. So um, just a heads up for what's coming up in this episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about the episode It's Your Funeral. And then, as we previewed on our Hammer into Anvil podcast, we have a really special guest who joined us for a chat about her career and uh, role in The Prisoner, but also many other things as well. And that's the wonderful Annette Andre. Yeah, so that's coming up later. But first, we're going to get into It's Your Funeral. I've just told you I need your help in preventing an assassination. They've heard, they are aware, and they don't need anyone's help. They don't believe me. So the first thing I think we felt when we uh, watched It's Your Funeral, and not for the first time, this is like, you know, the the umpteenth time we watched some (laughs) of these episodes, um, but it does feel like a very ITC-style episode. Um, It doesn't, you know, as we said um, in the intro, it doesn't feel like a number six-centric episode. And certainly I don't think um, there's an additional like another level or allegorical level to what's going on in it. It doesn't feel like an episode which has multiple meanings or or has lots of symbolism in it. It's very much an ITC action thriller kind of episode, which does make it unique amongst um, episodes of The Prisoner. But although the plot itself isn't the most intricately devised, I have to say it does have some absolutely fantastic performances in it. Mm. Um, it's strange because it has lots of characters in it who all have quite big roles. Usually, you know, it's six and number two with the odd, you know, extra guest who's you know who's turning up. In this case, there's quite a few extra cast members who uh, who show up, and they all they all bring something to it. And it just gives you a real feeling that the village uh, is a place that's occupied by lots of people, and it it, it does cover the gamut of people who are there willingly, people who are there against their will, and also the people who are running it, and also delves into some of the ideas that the village itself uh, cannot be really trusted in terms of even looking after its own people, which <laughs> yeah. I think is a really sinister element which hasn't really been addressed before in the show. And it's a bit like, I think, something like Checkmate in that regard, where you see a lot of other people in the village who are actively wanting to work against the village authorities or to escape. Um, it'll be that you you know you get the the watchmaker and his daughter who have you know a bit more to do in this than some of the gang that Maguin recruits in um, in Checkmate, mm. but it it does give you the sense that there are more people resisting than just number six. Yeah. Uh, whereas in some of the other episodes, it can feel like everyone else in the village is just carrying placards around and <laughs> going hooray hooray. Uh, it's so it, in that respect, it, it feels like it. It could have been pointing towards more of a, an idea within the prison of exploring more about the other people in the village. Yeah. Um, although it's it's still notable in this that you never really find out why uh, number 50 and 51 are there or what they've done to end up in the village. Uh, you, you don't find out much about their backstory. It's only sort of hinted at so you can imagine things for yourself, but it remains a mystery. Yeah, and I think we said this in the Checkmate episode as well. You know, one wonders if this is one of those kinds of plots that uh, 
could have developed into an alternate version of the prisoner itself. You know, one which was less about number six and more about um, all the people in the village, um, which I think is an interesting way of looking at it because the village does have some wonderful um, guest starring roles in it. But I also get the sense that McGowan probably at this point in making the show was was really keen on reining the whole thing in to focus on the character of Six as a means to really explore bigger themes like, you know, the individual versus the system and free will, I mean, much bigger ideas. Whereas I think this reflects more of a straightforward plot, albeit one which is still very engaging. Um, it just doesn't feel like the other episodes of The Prisoner that are bigger picture in, in scope. Yeah, and I think it's... It, it's much more, in, in some ways, it's fitting with the way a lot of other ITC shows were done at that time. But in, in that respect of bringing in a lot of new characters and, and other things going on in the village, which sometimes feels unprisoner-like, is much more akin to the way that a show would be made now. And in fact, when they remade The Prisoner, there was a lot more focus on other people in the village. I think, was it was it Lenny James? Yeah. and And his family, who become quite big characters in it. Yeah, he's a taxi driver at the beginning, isn't he? And then yeah. he becomes quite a big role. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you don't really make shows, well, you, you just don't make shows like this anymore, but you, you would never really make a show that just focused so narrowly on a character and then on these big allegorical things anymore. I think it would get workshopped out mm. of, of the process, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think it, it goes to show that with all other episodes of The Prisoner, you really got a sense of the world of The Prisoner mm. without it needing to show all these extra details. Whereas now they would need to show a lot more of what's going on in order to really hammer home the fact that this was a place with lots of people and lots of things going on. It just reminds me of how great the vision is of the people behind this because they they really felt that they could bring the world of The Prisoner to the audience using quite a unique way. And actually, although this is uh, slightly strange compared to the other episodes, it is another unique episode in the collection of 17. And I think it's, you know, it's a wonderful addition. So It's Your Funeral. It was written by Michael Cramoy and directed by Robert Asher. And it's got an unusual uh, number of things happening in the background, if you can put it that (laughs) way. So... uh, Michael Cramoy had written lots of very standard sort of action-adventure stories for TV. I think he'd written several episodes of The Saint. Uh, he, I think he was American and he'd worked on Dragnet for several hmm. years. Um, he'd written on The Invisible Man. And he was brought in to write an episode. Specifically, they wanted something that could be written around the use of existing footage that had been shot in Port Marion. So it, it was a very deliberate choices I think in in some of the plot elements that you have here where he's clearly thinking okay this is the footage that they have that is left over Mm. from other episodes how do you fit this into a narrative and I think that partly explains why the story is so odd in Mm. places and why really weird bits of footage are used for no apparent reason yeah it feels at times a little disjointed but at the same time uh full credit to the uh the editorial team behind it because I think they do they do stitch it together into a into a cohesive episode it just doesn't feel as as intricately thought out and planned as some of the other episodes do yeah because if you had a blank slate and you could 
plot an episode out, you're going to end up with something slightly different to where if you're working with certain things that you've got to put in in order to make it work around footage you already have, it constrains you a bit in how you're going to make the story unfold. Yeah, And also this does feel, again, going back to the nature of it being put together, it does feel like a very short episode of The Prisoner as well. Mm. I think it I think it actually does come in as one of the shortest, certainly. Because yeah. it kind of zips by, but there's it kind of just ends at the very end. And uh, it, it's probably a couple of minutes shorter than the average episode. But warning to listeners, you know, that doesn't mean this podcast can be any shorter than usual. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Robert Asher, who had, who had been, I think, brought in by McGowan to direct an episode, got sacked partway through production after some kind of massive... Well, I'm not sure. It's a, is it a row if only one side is doing the shouting? <laughs> I'm not sure. But there was some kind of bust up on set. And um, I think you'll hear a bit more about that later when uh, Annette talks about her experience of working on the episode. But it clearly wasn't the best backstage environment uh, going on in this episode. So although it's credited to Robert Asher, I think McGuin himself finished off the directing after he had basically sacked Asher off the off the show. And this was the eighth episode in production. Mm. So it was about halfway in, and I think that was the point when McGowan was really starting to take over every aspect of the show. Yeah. I wonder if he just felt that he'd started to realise what direction he wanted things to really go in now. And maybe at that point, it becomes a case of him trying to get everyone to see his vision. I think that must have been very hard for somebody like him to to get everyone to to kind of fall into line, you know, to do that. So I think a lot of the cast and crew, it's really interesting when you, you know, even at the uh, at the uh, Elstree McGowan event, you know, it does seem quite divisive. A lot of people really enjoyed their time working with him and mm. other people had a differing view and they felt he was quite difficult to work with. I think ultimately... I think he was basically a genius. <laughs> and I think he had a way of wanting to do things and he became possibly uh, less willing to accommodate others um, as as the uh, the production went on and he really wanted it to be about very specific things. Yeah, and, and I think when you look at the finished product of this episode, it, it is very short as prisoner episodes go. There's a lot of kosho in it. I mean, that kosho <laughs> sequence goes on for a long time. Including some kosho from uh, Hammering to Anvil. <laughs> yes. And there's also some scenes which just feel completely extraneous. Like there, There's two completely different scenes in which the air presumptive number two is on the phone to his superior telling them that everything is running fine. Which you don't really need twice, yeah. you know. If you if you'd if you'd overshot, if you had too much footage and you were editing it down, you would have just axed one of those. Yeah. You wouldn't bother putting them both in. But it seems like they were struggling to fill out the whole episode with footage. And what that means is that we uh, we haven't had a drinking game in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but what you can do in uh, it's your funeral, the drinking game is have a drink every time you see some footage that is very obviously from a different episode <laughs> that has been reused in It's Your Funeral, because there are quite a few of them. Yeah. You will have a very merry time. And there's a bonus if you manage to find anything which is stock footage from another TV show entirely. <laughs> it does feel like that could happen at certain points. Um, but yeah, no, it is. It's a really good episode. It's an unusual one. But for all its flaws, it's certainly not one to miss. So we begin with a new character, number 50, played by Annette Andre. 
who is heading towards number six's house. She looks very concerned and she comes up to the his front door of his cottage and pushes it and it whirs open. Mm. So it's clearly not locked or she's able to get in anyway. And you see that number two, or who we think at this point is number two, and the supervisor are watching all of this happen. And uh, I think number two says, oh, at last. <laughs> they seem to have been waiting for number 50 to go and approach number six in this way and are quite relieved that she's doing so. And number six is asleep in bed, but he's not really asleep. <laughs> he's just pretending. And uh, and when she tries to wake him up, uh, he's already awake and he's very angry and suspicious that she's in the house. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a bit of Magoo and Ham in this episode. There's a lot of... Uh... <laughs> unusual intonations and uh, and ways of pronouncing these unusual inflections it doesn't go full shatner but uh, <laughs> but you know this is like this is a man who is who is really kind of on edge he seems quite frustrated in this episode mm-hmm. and i think i mean that in terms of number 6 not um and not magoo and i think this does place the events of this uh, episode sort of in the village after number 6 has been there for a long time he seems kind of exhausted by being here He's not broken, but he's so used to these scams that the village are trying to pull on him that he just is very short with anyone and everyone. I mean, it's not that he's even suspicious of people. He just doesn't trust anyone uh, anymore. And it feels like the way he's uh, really dismissive of uh, number 50, it just speaks to the fact that, you know, he's been down this thing before. He feels like he's he's been uh, tricked so many times or or been... Um, coerced into doing things by the village that now he's just had enough and he's not even going to attempt to engage with it. Yeah, so there's a bit of scenery chewing going (laughs) on as uh, number 50 tries to explain that she needs number six's help Mm. with something and he's just not having any of it. He keeps shouting for the benefit of the people that he knows are watching and listening. At some point, as she realises that she's not going to be able to get Mm. through to him, Number two and the supervisor watch as she collapses in number six's living room and mention that she's been given some kind of time-release drug that would deliberately make her faint right on cue. Yeah, it's another example, actually, you know, fitting in with what we've seen in The Prisoner before of the kinds of weird medical technologies that are being developed in the village. In this case, I think it's meant to be sort of in your system for a certain amount of time and then... And then it's turned into an active drug in response to your sort of nervous system or something. Mm. So uh, clearly she starts getting quite worked up and frustrated when she's interacting with Six. And the consequence of that is it activates the drug and it causes her to collapse. Yeah. And while she's unconscious, number two and the supervisor have a, a bit of a back and forth about the fact that the door got left open. Mm. Where the supervisor says that oh, it was a last minute change of the plan so that she'd be able to get in because number six doesn't always answer the door because he's a grumpy sod. And, uh, well, he doesn't say that, it's just my editorialisation. Uh, and uh, number two is angry about this because he feels that this is just going to be a reason why number six thinks it's a trap. Yeah. So this number two, played wonderfully by Darren Nesbitt, he is um, a bit of a control freak. He's quite calm and quite collected, but it's clear that while well, he's always looking at sort of a you know a file or something that he has in front of him as a means to guide what's going on, but he does seem like somebody who maps out absolutely everything. And it's clear that this is a guy who has a very, very specific plan about what he wants to happen and he 
he doesn't do improvisation. He doesn't he doesn't like people to change things, and certainly you know I think that's why he doesn't like um, this uh, this information that the supervisor has given him. But more fitting with the themes of the episode, I mean, he's also a guy who likes things to run, you know, actually like clockwork. Mm. You know, everything has to be very well organised. He wants things executed you know, very precisely. And he doesn't trust anything else other than what's in these plans, which he has drawn up. He's, and he sticks to them faithfully. Yeah, I mean, he's basically treating all of the different characters involved in this elaborate scheme of his as cogs that all need to turn at exactly the right time in order for it to come off yeah i think we'll come on to it later but one weird aspect of this plot is it does rely on number six engaging with this plan in a very Mm. specific way and although they do explain this in terms of saying that they've started to understand his behavioral patterns etc you know for somebody who has been presented as somebody who's quite unpredictable who has his own way of doing things and is aware of the fact that he's being watched the fact that he does carry out various tasks and do things that are in line with this plan are a little bit out of keeping with how we've seen Six develop in the series so far. Mm. So the reason they drugged her is because they believe that number six will act out of chivalry mm-hmm. and uh, and not throw her out. And although you can tell that number six is still thinking that this is some kind of trick, he uh, he now does believe that she isn't necessarily knowingly in or whatever the trick is because when she wakes up although she thinks that she was just exhausted he can recognize from uh, uh, her pupils being dilated that she was actually drugged and let's face it, it's happened enough times to number six <laughs> where you know he wakes up with needle marks and you think oh no not again what's happened now um so it's it's a fairly standard operating procedure for the village to drug people so six is a little more receptive this time to at least listening to what number 50 has to say. What she explains is that she's there to get his help because she wants to tell him about an assassination attempt. Now, given that Six is so suspicious of everyone in the village, he basically believes it's something that he just, it must be some some plot or ploy to get him involved. um, And he really doesn't want to know about it. But uh, number 50 is quite persistent. So clearly Six has elevated himself to to the status of somebody in the village who is a perpetual outsider who can be trusted with this information. Um, certainly if we're, if at this point in the story we are um, to believe that uh, that 50 is actually working on the side that she's actually on. Mm. I mean, um, it's clear that she's decided to tell uh, Six this information and there's frustration when uh, he doesn't believe her. I think she kind of thinks, look, this is exactly the kind of thing that she needs help with. He's the guy to do it. And why is it she just doesn't believe him? Yeah, so Six as well, you know, now that you've announced it, Mm -hmm. and obviously the village is listening, they're (laughs) going to know this is happening. And she says, well, they're not going to believe me uh, because I'm I'm on a a jamming list, (laughs) uh, which isn't for, you know, making some nice strawberry jam for the town fair. But when he wants to know what jamming is, she says, oh, no, I tell lies, remember? I'm not going to tell you. So she just leaves. So he's none the wiser as to what jamming is, but he's clearly mulling over how he feels about this whole situation after she goes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because although he's very good at immediately disregarding people like this, often it's the case that he does think about them quite a lot. And it's that moment which I think the village do have a handle on. Although he likes to 
put up the front of being resistant to everything, he's naturally quite curious, mainly because he's always open to learning about the village. He wants to know more about it. And maybe this is one of those aspects where he's thinking, I don't know what's going on here, but is there something that I should know that would help me ultimately take down the village? Yeah, and interestingly, on her way out of the room, she actually has to open the door. It doesn't yeah. open automatically, yeah. which I think is probably just an oversight. But yeah. yeah, it's kind of odd. Yeah, usually you have that kind of uh, hum and it kind of opens and, and closes. So yeah, it's a it's an unusual thing, but actually, given the nature of the of the amount of plotting that has gone into this uh, <laughs> by uh, number two, you you do kind of wonder if that's an additional thing or not. I mean, it does just strike you as something that is a bit weird. It's odd when you're watching a TV show and all of a sudden it seems odd that a door hasn't opened by itself. <laughs> and it, it and it distracts you a little bit. And you're thinking, yeah, what could that mean? So number two and the supervisor are discussing this and they're concerned that they're running out of time <laughs> to uh, do whatever it is they need to do. And number two, uh, and uh, Darren Nesbitt's hair in this is strange. Yeah, he does look like Joe 90. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he, he's got kind of weirdly bouffant blonde hair which apparently was from uh it was dyed from filming whatever movie it was that he'd been working on before it wasn't joe 90 (laughs) it should have been and uh and mcgoon told him to keep it rather than dye it back he said you look like joe 90 (laughs) (laughs) he gets a call from someone in authority someone on the, the big phone um who is clearly in on whatever it is that they're planning and from this discussion, we learn that they need number six for credibility purposes for the plan to work. And they have to find a way to make him interested. Yeah. So this is the first episode in a while, certainly, where there's nothing to do with uh, the village trying to break number six. There's, you know, there's nothing. It's, it's, it seems to be about the fact that the village have their own agenda to follow, which is uh, nothing to do with why they want to get information from number six or why he's resigned or any of that. And certainly during the episode, he makes no attempt to escape. It's not one of those episodes. What they want to do is exploit number six as a member of the village and use use his status as a means to push forward their own internal plan, which is strange because it's one of the few times when they have to admit that something they're doing is so sneaky that they actually have to invoke... Um, the manipulation of six for their own end rather than anything which is detrimental to number six. Yeah, in some ways this plot does end up being overly convoluted. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like they could have found a simpler way to do what they wanted to do. Um, But, you know, the village does like elaborate schemes sometimes. So uh, number two requests an activity prognosis for number six from number eight i think this is the second number eight that we've had because nadia was number eight that is true in times of big ben this is not an episode which, which is big on continuity though <laughs> <No>. <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if in the editing everyone had number eight badges including number two <laughs> and uh she's played by wanda fentham yeah who was a big star of lots of itc shows and it continued sort of for a very long time i mean most recently i remember her being in sherlock Mm. playing uh, Sherlock's mum. Yeah. And in reality, of course, she is Benedict Cumberbatch's mum. Yes. <laughs> I suppose Wanda Bentham was famously uh, Colonel Virginia Lake in Jerry Anderson's UFO. Mm. You see? Uh, but to be, you know, given that we're doing all these funny connections, 
Darren Nesbitt, who plays the new number two here, he was the eponymous man who came back in the episode of that. And, mm. yeah, no, no, it gets better. And that episode was written by Terence Feely. <laughs> 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 Which featured Kevin Bacon. No, it, it, it didn't do that. Um, and Terence Feely wrote two episodes of The Prisoner. He wrote The Schizoid Man. Yeah. And he wrote The Girl Who Was Deaf. Yeah. And that's in addition to him writing a ton of other TV shows at the time. So he wrote, he wrote like, guest episode um, slots on, like, loads of shows in the 60s, 70s, 80s. He was involved in, I don't know, Cat's Eyes, The Gentle Touch, lots of things. Carried on. Mm. There's a whole mix of connections there, wasn't there? <laughs> I actually remember, for some reason, you know how you always have a weird show that you can associate with somebody for no apparent reason. Mm. I don't know why this is... I remember her, not from all the things that she did that she was successful for sort of in the 60s onwards. I remember her because she played the the friends or the neighbours of uh, Penelope Keith and William Gaunt in Next of Kin. (laughs) That was on BBC One, like in the, I don't know, the early 90s, mid 90s or something. And I only remember that because I, at the same time it was on... It was a you know it was a new show on 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 BBC One. I think it ran for a couple of series. It was like a sitcom. Um, it was because BBC Two were repeating episodes of The Champions in that slot they used to have at six pm on weekdays. Oh yeah. Where they used to put you know uh, the Next Generation on a Wednesday, DS Nine on a Thursday. Um, the Tuesday slot that was taken up by things like. Uh, I don't know, quantum leap and sliders in terms of the new things. But the older things, they often used to put on some of these old ITC shows. And one of them was The Champions. And I remember watching a huge amount of The Champions. Case in point, when we come to continue our podcast later in the year. (laughs) Um, And uh, I remember William Gaunt being in that and being really surprised that uh, he looked exactly the same, uh, but obviously older. Uh, when I was watching his other show at the same time, and, it, and for me it was really weird because I was quite young when I was watching it, and I was like, "Ah, oh, that was that was that was a really weird thing." And I don't know why I remember that, but uh, when I see uh, Wanda Bentham in this or any other thing, I always think of that TV show that nobody else watched. It was <laughs> it was otherwise pretty rubbish, but it did have. I kind of watched it because it had somebody from the Champions in. <laughs> that was an unnecessary two minutes of exposition. That's when I watched <laughs> about, you know, twenty years ago. Of all the uh, of all the sitcoms that we have brought in to, uh, to this podcast over the course of looking at the prisoner, that has got to be the most obscure yet. There'll be more. There'll be more. <laughs> so yes, number eight is asked for a prognosis. Report. Apologies to everyone for that. that was... <laughs> I'd like to say we were going to edit that out, but I'm pretty certain it's going to stay in. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, pre- as. Almost all the footage they shot for this episode also stayed in. <laughs> and you know what we'll do is we'll also splice it into other episodes of the podcast later on. <laughs> if ever an episode is coming in at like under four hours, we're like, we need to bump it up. And we'll put that little anecdote in about <laughs> me watching Next of Kin back in the mid 90s. And people will be like, ah, I remember that. Or did I? <laughs> Eight fifteen am the subject cooling off. So, they request an activity prognosis from number eight. (laughs) And we see this montage of number six going about his daily routine in the village, where where he he gets up in the morning, he he exercises, he has some kind of crazy gymnasium equipment that he's built in the forest. Mm. 
to see someone who's completely different height and build to McGowan doing gymnastics on a, uh, what do you call a, they're not the, the parallel bars, what are they, the, you know the big twirly one, not the eight, you get the asymmetric ones and then you also get the high bar. The high bar. The high bar. Um, yeah, so, someone who doesn't even vaguely look like Bertrand McGowan on the high bar. And I presume and, it was Frank Mayer, his, his stunt double, but... There are so many. There's so much use of uh, of uh, of uh, Frank Mayer in this episode in particular. It just becomes quite exhausting because they literally are cutting between between him and McGowan so much during the episode. Probably more noticeably than in any other one. Yeah, and he he's also set up a punching bag in in the uh, in the forest to exercise on. And then for me, and this is possibly the single most absurd moment in the whole 17 episodes of The Prisoner. A very brief clip, number six, water skiing, as part of his morning routine. <laughs> a, who goes water skiing as part of their morning routine, other than a professional water skier? I don't know who would do that. And B, why have they got people water skiing in the village? You could literally get the boat and try and escape. What's going on? I don't understand it. I think it's interesting that of all the... So I remember, again, going back to Alex Cox's book, that, you know, he has a very interesting idea of uh, of who the prisoner might might have been in his former life. Um, we won't spoil it. You should read the book and find out. And uh, the hint is that it's not necessarily just a, you know, just a secret agent or spy. But everyone seemed to have overlooked the fact that the real original profession of number six in his formal life was actually the water skier. <laughs> and the village is just a place which holds, you know, semi-professional, you know, retired water skiers <laughs> who, who are a threat with all their water skiing knowledge from the rest of the world. Or maybe they love water skiing so much that they have to be, you know, taken away from everyone else and kept in their own little water skiing kind of enclave where they can water ski in peace. <laughs> And away from everyone else, where their love of water skiing would become infectious. I don't know. I, I don't even know what that footage is from. They can't have actually gone out and shot water skiing footage. I think it could have it. actually been, well, I'm sure somebody hasn't done it yet, but they, it'd be good if, uh, for somebody to edit that bit into the bit of uh, the Fonz literally jumping a shark <laughs> in, uh, in Happy Days. That's basically where it's going. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I would just love to know if this is like stock footage from something else. I can't believe that with all the, with all their budgetary problems, that they would go out and shoot footage of someone water skiing for a two second clip that made no sense <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> when he's finished water skiing, as then part of his routine, he uh, he goes to the cafe, buys a newspaper, tally ho, hooray. And also on the newsstand are two more village publications. Yeah, we saw them before in Hammer into Anvil. There were a couple of things there. This time there's two new ones. There's the Village Mercury and the Tally Ho Journal. Yeah, it's not even the same two as last time. So there are now four publications. I mean, maybe the Tally Ho Journal is like, a, you know, the Sunday paper yeah. to the Tally Ho. They're made by the same people. It can't be the Sunday paper because this, this episode is taking place on like a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, yeah. uh, where you go, um, but the Village Mercury is clearly a uh, a new entrant into the market uh, compared to the ones we had before. So mm. there's a lot of competition in <laughs> village publications, uh, which is an interesting publishing arena to be in. Apparently, 
And uh, to finish off his routine, he plays some chess. And there's some really mixed up shots mm. here. Where he's he's playing chess outside the old people's home. Yeah. Which is really the hotel. But you see a shot of the back of number six which is clearly not Patrick McGowan, mm. but playing chess with, with an opponent. And you can see past number six, and in the background you see the buildings of the village mm. up, on, uh, up on the coast. But then it cuts to a shot looking in the other direction where you do see number six and it is McGowan, but behind him are the buildings of the village. And I Yeah, I'm not sure, but I think the shot they use there... Um, it's either the same footage or it's an extended version of that take from the episode Chimes of Big Ben, maybe, which is the one where he's playing chess and it's the one where he's waiting for the arrival of the helicopter, which you see um, arriving in the background, Yeah, uh, which has brought uh, Nadia to the village. Yeah, yeah, it is. Because the whole world can't rotate 180 <laughs> degrees behind where they are. It's You can't even explain that as village weirdness it's yeah. just completely the wrong shot <laughs> uh, and and not for the first time and probably not for the last in this episode and uh after playing chess he goes to sit for a portrait yeah. with an artist uh, an old man number 118 who's yeah. played by charles lloyd pack and i think now we've got to get into another diversion into classic <laughs> sitcoms but this one is one that probably almost everyone will have heard of uh, he is the father of Roger Lloyd Pack from Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, Trigger's dad. Yeah. And given that we're being really, really tenuous here, obviously Roger Lloyd Pack was in Only Fools and Horses, which also guest starred Wanda Bentham, who is number eight, as Cassandra Trotter's mum. Ah, oh, I didn't know that was her. At this point, we're just making random connections. <laughs> and after sitting for the portrait, I think that's the end of his daily routine. Mm. And uh, the computer prints out a whole uh, string of what looks like thick ticker tape. And uh, number eight folds it up, puts it in an envelope, marked official for the attention of the acting number two, day's activities prognosis number six. Yeah, and this this computer they use, I mean, interestingly, in terms of uh, real continuity with the rest of the series, they do seem to use these things quite a lot because I think this is a similar computer that was used in Hammer into Anvil when um, Patrick Cargill's number two is trying to decipher some of the coded messages that number six is sending out. So they put information in it and it spits out an interpretation. Um, and, a, and more broadly, I think it fits in what uh, what started off in an episode like The General, where it's clear that uh, the village are building these kind of supercomputers to process information and process questions. So I like the fact that there is occasionally some really interesting continuity in the prisoner mythology in this episode. Yeah, and this also gives you a, a big clue as <laughs> to what the, the unfolding story of the episode is going to be, but it says the acting number two rather than just number two. Because mm. I don't think we've ever actually heard number two being referred to in these terms before. Uh, but the fact that it's very specifically for the acting number two means that you know even the people working for him don't see him as the number two yet. He's, he's just uh, standing in. Yeah, he's not called the new number two um, in this context. And certainly uh, Darren Nesbitt is the one who is featured in the opening credits. Although, mm. again, I'm not sure if it's his voice or 
uh, Robert Rietti's doing the uh, the voice of number two in the opening. And then we see a brief scene where number two is talking to number 100, man mm. in a pink jacket, played by Mark Eden, who is uh, last seen under a Blackpool tram. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a Coronation Street reference for anyone who wants to go Google him <laughs> uh, about something called Plan Division Q and he's just checking that number 100's cover is still okay mm. but they don't elaborate so then we uh, cut back to uh, number 6 having his portrait made by number 118 and uh, it turns out that whilst this painting is being done Six is actually using it as an opportunity to ask 118 about what the jammers are in the village. So he's kind of having sort of a casual chat with 118. And and he explains that there are people in the village who are known as as jammers, who basically are now known in the village for coming up with uh, sort of boy who cried wolf kind of stories about various plots about insurgency in the village, etc. And they're designed uh, in order to waste the village overlord's time in investigating them. It's basically just a, a confusion or diversion technique which is being done where all these claims are made and then the village is duty-bound to actually investigate them. What's happened over many, many years seemingly of this happening is that many people who are known for making these, these false claims that require lots of resource to investigate them um, are now put on a list of jammers by the village. And now a lot of their claims are actually just discarded out of hand immediately. Mm. So although they used to be able to create havoc for the village, now if ever somebody who is a known jammer comes up with one of these uh, theories or claims, they're always disregarded. So in this case, we now are getting a sense of what's going on here because this relates to what uh, number 50 was saying at the beginning. So she was warning number six about the fact there was an assassination attempt and that she really needed help. And it's clear that she needs help because she, as a jammer, will not be considered a reliable source. And therefore, any claim she makes about an assassination will not be investigated. So she clearly thinks there is something that is about to happen and it's a, and it's something that needs to be taken seriously. So she needs to get somebody else to uh, to add credibility to um, uh, to this claim so that somebody takes it seriously and is able to uh, sort of alert the village to the fact this is going to happen. And the reasons for that are kind of interesting and they get uh, discussed later on. Yeah, and it's actually a very clever story idea. You know, what happened to someone who is involved in a campaign of disinformation suddenly has information that needs to be acted upon and cannot get anyone to take them seriously. Hmm. Um, it, it's a clever concept for the story and it, it's a clever concept in general I mean this is basically very early um, form of I guess almost like astroturfing and fake news mm. being spread around the village in order to completely distract the, author- the authorities and ensure that they cannot know what to investigate mm. so that you can undertake genuine plans almost in plain sight uh, without anyone realising what you're doing. Because if you are being surveilled all the time and you can't keep something a secret, the only way to effectively keep it a secret is to hide it in plain sight yeah. among so much information that the truth cannot be picked out from all the many, many fictions that you're putting mm. out there. It's a smart idea. Mm. But now there's a situation where you do need to convey some information for reasons that probably you never anticipated you would need. 
Mm. And uh, that's what's kind of the central conceit behind this episode. Yeah. So now that number six has learned all about what jamming is from 118, the uh, portrait sitting is finished, the painting (laughs) is done, and 118 turns it around, and it's a wonderful abstract piece of circles and squares, (laughs) which number six proclaims is a perfect likeness. It it kind of reminds me of the humour in uh, Chimes of Big Ben, relating Mm. to, you know, it means what it is. (laughs) So... Number eight brings the prognosis report to number two. And uh, bizarrely, even though it's been sealed up in an envelope, number two then asks number eight to just take out the envelope and read (laughs) it. So I don't know what the point of that was. And there's this really odd moment where number two asks what the margin of error is on these reports. So he's, as he said before, he's clearly very controlling. He wants everything to work exactly perfectly. He wants to know what possibility there is that this report is going to be wrong so that he doesn't get caught out. And number eight says that the computers refused to return the information of what their margin of error is for calculating these things. And they refused to do it by simply not responding when Mm. they were asked the question. I think this ties back to the general, because there they had a computer that was programmed to answer any question. And when faced with an unanswerable question uh, by number six... Uh, which was why, question mark, um, it exploded. <laughs> so clearly they've, they've, they've programmed the computers in the village to, uh, to respond to questions uh, that they cannot answer with uh, silence rather than exploding and injuring everyone within a, um, a defined radius. <laughs> so uh, number two jokes that they'll be wanting their own trade union next. <laughs> and it's funny now... But give it another 50 years and uh, artificial intelligence probably will have its own trade union. <laughs> so number eight reads out uh, the predicted course of number six's day, that he's going to go for a stroll in the village, that uh, he's going to you know, go through all his usual normal routine. Um, he says right now he'll be walking in the village, he's going to go up to a kiosk, buy a newspaper, some soap and some sweets. And number two says, no, no, six doesn't eat sweets. He Mm. never eats sweets. That's not going to happen. It must be wrong. Uh, But then we see, playing out on the screen, the fact that uh, a lady in the village, number 36, tries to buy sweets, doesn't have enough credits on her weekly credit allowance, which kind of explains how number six has credits. If you get a weekly allowance without having to do anything... And uh, But she doesn't have enough to buy her sweets, and she's very upset. She can't get through a day without her sweets, apparently. Mm. So number six buys the sweets for her. Mm. Um, so number eight is understandably a little bit smug about the fact that it was right all along. And number two apologises for uh, doubting the outcome. Yeah, and even some of the footage here that they watch on the screen is re-shown from earlier on in the episode, isn't it? Yeah. So the bit where he's buying the newspaper, I mean, that's already been seen, which yeah. is kind of weird because they're obviously, as number eight is narrating events as they're happening at the moment. Although there is a time difference, isn't there? Yeah, Between yeah. when... So so the first time they go through this and describe number six's uh, morning routine, they give a series of times. But actually, when they're going over them now uh, and eight is explaining them to number two, the time has actually shifted. And actually, they're using footage of something that's already happened, uh, <laughs> which is strange. So obviously, they're watching on the screen what's happening live in order for eight to prove that the predictions that the computer is making about six's patterns of behaviour are in fact correct. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> There's a couple of interesting things going on here. First of all, the village seems to operate some kind of universal basic income system. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, again, give another 50 years, and who knows, maybe we'll all have that, <laughs> as the AIs have their trade unions, um, where everybody gets a certain number of credits, um, irrespective of what they do. Maybe you can get extra credits for having a job, because some people do seem to have a job mm. in the village, or, or how some people don't need to have a job in the village, that's never really explained. But evidently, everybody does get some kind of allowance. But also, the lady who wants the sweets, number 36, is played by Grace Arnold. <laughs> now, she played Mrs Butterworth's maid in Many Happy Returns. Yeah. So we've seen the actress who plays Mrs Butterworth twice, because she appeared in the party in A, B and C, yeah. the dreamy party. Uh, whether or not she was still being Mrs Butterworth at that point or not, we don't know, because... Mrs. Butterworth turns out to be number two. But if Mrs. Butterworth was number two, it makes sense that the maid working with her was also in the employ of the village. Yeah. Because the whole thing was a setup. Yeah. To uh, to get number six. And it's completely plausible that she has now gone back to her role in the village as just a member of uh, of the place. Yeah, because maybe if she if she had been employed by the village and had been you know going out on uh, effectively missions for them, hmm. uh, maybe she's now retired from that and is now consigned to the village herself, uh, buying sweets every day. Because you know th- there is the question of what do they do with their own people once they've reached the end of their usefulness to the organisation, which yeah. is effectively what the whole episode is about. Yeah. Maybe some of them end up in the village. But if you've been number two, you can't really end up in the village because you might undermine the new number two. Mm-hmm. So what are they going to do with you? We shall find out what they're going to do with them. Uh, yeah, but funnily enough, Grace Arnold, number 36, one of the other things that she was in in the 60s was a, a TV production of Sherlock Holmes, where she played Mrs. Hudson. Yeah. And it's a series that had Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Stock as Dr. Watson. Yeah, now he's going to pop up in a uh, interesting role in a few episodes' <laughs> time uh, in the episode Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. Mm. So it's interesting how all these actors and actresses kind of appear in appear in related shows all the time. It's kind of fun making the connections. And although we make like one or maybe two an episode, I think um, to real experts and aficionados, there are tremendous numbers of links between everyone involved in, uh, in TV and film production in the sort of 60s and 70s. Mm. So number six buys the sweets for her. Number two is now happy because uh, the prognosis report of number six a day is now all running like clockwork. Yeah, Everything... because he did buy the sweets. He did buy the sweets. And uh, the prognosis is now that number six is going to go play a game of chess. But number two really isn't interested in this. Mm-hmm. and says, I'll skip past the chess game, don't care about that. And as soon as number eight mentions that he's going to go for his twice-weekly kosho practice... <laughs> That's what number two is interested in. Um, that's the window of opportunity that he's been looking for, is the kosher practice. And he cryptically says to number 100, you know what I've got in mind, and sends number 100 out to do his bidding. Fission prognosis programming must include a quantum permutation of all cause and effects of supplementary elements. In, in other words, the computer calculated the old woman's behaviour would change the behaviour pattern of number six. So we saw it for the first time in Hammer into Anvil, but it appears that was only a teaser for what was to come here. <laughs> um, what we have 
Next is an extended sequence of the game of Kosho. Mm. So it's clear now that uh, Six plays this frequently. He, you know, he goes for practice. And again, it's a weird game. We have no idea where this game has actually come from. It's like it's, it's strange and very village-like, unlike anything I've seen before. But it's so much fun to watch. Yeah. Um, it's the usual thing. It's uh, it's two trampolines, um, sort of a, a little sort of small pool of water in the middle, a gantry around the outside, and you can basically, and not only can you bounce on the trampolines, but you can sort of bounce and climb up the sides. Your goal appears to be to grab the other opponent and uh, throw them in, in the water in some way. Um, and this just goes on for a really long time in this episode. It's not like, you know, a quick a quick shot of anything. You know, this is like it goes on for a bit. And, I, and it's clear that the footage here... And so the other episode this featured in was Hammering to Anvil. It's clear that some of the footage we're seeing here is actually from uh, maybe outtakes from that episode as well. Because although we see uh, number six facing off against a new opponent, although it's not as, you know, it's not the aggressive challenge that was made in the previous episode. This is like a like consensual... A yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like a sparring game. It's a consensual yeah. game of uh, of Kosho. Um, there are a few odd cuts during the sequence, which clearly reveal that uh, um, some of the footage does actually feature Basil Hoskins, who was his opponent in the episode uh, Hammering to Anvil. And uh, whilst this is going on, um, it's kind of weird. You see number 100 kind of watching the practice for a while. And just outside the main Kosho room... Uh, there's the locker room and number 100 goes to number six's locker, opens it up and he uh, switches number six's watch, which is resting on a shelf, for um, another version. All we know is that the watches have been uh, switched and this is obviously part of what uh, number two's plan is. The one really interesting detail actually is that when you see all the lockers, uh, they've got a nice uh, village font logo. Uh, for all the numbers, and you see, I think it's number eighty-nine is next to him, and number six. So, and, and these must be fixed lockers because they've all got, actually got printed logos on. Mm. Um, but what's really funny is when they do a close-up of the uh, of the locker itself, you see there's like a handwritten number six. <laughs> so it's a close. I mean, it must be an insert <laughs> shot uh, just to get a close-up. But it's it's kind of funny that they use um, you know a different locker, you know, with a different label on it. But anyway, um, uh, we see that the uh, the watches have been switched. Number 100 still um, is watching and uh, we then cut back to the Kosho practice itself and it ends with uh, number six getting his opponent uh, in the water. And as they kind of bounce off the uh, um, off the trampolines, I think six does kind of this nice little backflip as well yeah. for some reason, which is clearly somebody else. It's not Patrick <laughs> McGowan uh, doing it. Um, you know, it's a solid dismount he does. And then he kind of uh, bows his head to his opponent. So it's clearly, you know, it is like a sparring that people practice against each other and at the end of the game, he returns to his uh, lockers and he goes to put his watch on and he realises that his watch is no longer working. So the one that was switched by number 100 was his working watch for one that is broken. So number six goes to visit the watchmaker <laughs> who has an entire watchmaker shop in the village, which A, seems a little bit unnecessary given that the village is not that big, and B, begs the question of why they were importing cuckoo clocks very recently, when they have someone who apparently makes them. Uh, the answer, of course, being that they probably hadn't thought of it yet when they wrote the episode. Uh, but number six goes in, explains that his watch has stopped, and the watchmaker, who has been tinkering with something on his desk, and is generally looking a bit suspicious about the whole thing, takes the watch into a back room in order to open it up and have a look inside to fix it. And while he's gone... 
number six looks at the mechanism that the watchmaker, who is number 51, was tinkering with on the desk. And it's clearly some kind of radio-controlled trigger mechanism. Yeah, so it's interesting, actually, that... um, I'm sure that he would get this anyway, but it's interesting that number six recognises this. Mm. So, again, that does speak to potentially what six's former profession may have involved, Mm. um, if it wasn't indeed a water skier, as we proposed (laughs) earlier. (laughs) So when the watchmaker brings the watch back, saying he's fixed it, and number six asks him what this mechanism is for and the watchmaker dismisses it oh it's just a toy and uh, as number six leaves number 100 emerges from a back room and we discover in the conversation between 100 and the watchmaker that they had deliberately left the trigger mechanism out on the desk for number six to see and recognize and the watchmaker is a little bit concerned about why this was necessary Mm. for their plan to work so evidently this is the cover um, that number 100 had that he was discussing earlier with number two. The watchmaker thinks that number 100 is on their side mm. and they're plotting something against the village. So with his watch fixed, uh, six leaves, and immediately as he's outside, he bumps into uh, number 50, um, who we last saw at the beginning of the episode giving six the warning about the assassination attempt. Now, uh, number 50's immediate response to seeing him is really interesting. She says, how did you know? And she reveals that the watchmaker is actually her father. And so she's clearly intrigued as to uh, why Six has got into the watchmaker's shop. Now, um, the whole time this is happening, number two is watching these events from um, from the Green Dome on the big screen. And he's discussing the events uh, with his uh, his lackey or, or goon, number 22. <laughs> um, and it's clear that the plan is all is all going like clockwork, as it were. He says something along the lines of, when it all works, I'll be showered with congratulations. Mm. But after number six has been there to warn him of what's <laughs> going to happen, which is clearly what they're planning for. They're deliberately showing number six what is going to happen mm-hmm. so that he will come to them. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I I think we should have checked this before. But is the is this lackey number 22 the same guy whom he was playing kosher with? <laughs> I, I, I can't quite tell. Um, there's something vaguely similar about him, but I I can't quite tell because uh, the Kosho opponent changes so many times (laughs) mid-practice. Because it could actually be uh, Patrick Targill's goon, who was Basil (laughs) Hoskins, which, you know, who he was playing in in Hammering to Amble, and apparently he had just spliced in to the the Kosho scenes uh, (laughs) in It's Your Funeral. So, number six, number 50 go to the cafe, and number six clearly understands now why number 50 is so concerned about what's going to happen because it's her own father who is caught up in all of this. Mm. And she explains that the only thing she knows for certain is that the victim's going to be number two. Yeah. But she doesn't know when or where it's going to happen. And she knows that there is another conspirator involved. She's seen him, but she doesn't know who he is. And number two is still watching this. Number 100 has joined him back in the Green Dome. And two is questioning whether the watchmaker has been indoctrinated enough that this is all going to work. So number two is, he's not Colin Gordon level nervous, (laughs) but he's clearly feels like he's got to have a hand on absolutely everything that is happening. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we said it earlier on, but the performances in this episode are really, really good. 
I really like Darren Nesbitt's number two because he just seems slightly otherworldly here. He's just in his own in his own zone in this. I mean, he has his own plan and almost to the, you know, he's so focused on getting this thing to work that he will kind of ignore any other details but because he knows that this is the way to get things done. But he plays it in a slightly um, strange, kind of almost ethereal way. He's just always kind of a bit out there the whole time. <laughs> and I remember reading that apparently, uh, much like Robert Asher, who was directing it as well, I don't think anyone was really clear what the show was about when they were making it um, in terms of the, you know, uh, the guest cast and sometimes, you know, uh, the directors who were brought in. Mm. So yeah, he does play it with an air of of slight confusion, but also he clearly knows what he is doing. But whether that fits into what everyone else <laughs> is doing, it's, you know, it's it is unclear. So now... Number 50 and number 6 go back to the watchmaker's shop to confront him yeah. with what they know. And first of all, we find out that number 50's name is Monique. Yeah, which is unusual because many times um, we've spoken about this in the past. It's it's often never a good sign when a character in the village is given uh, a real name. Hmm. But actually in this case, I suppose Annette Andre's character goes by both number 50 and Monique. She's not solely known by a name. Um, so it's not the same as other times, but uh, there's always something interesting about the characters who are given uh, given their actual name uh, during the episodes. Yeah, and it's, I think, the only time when you see relatives in yeah. the village. We've seen couples before, but we've never seen anyone who, like a, a parent-child relationship or yeah. anything like that in the village. So it is unique in that sense, in that her father is never going to start calling her number 50, <laughs> um, especially when he's clearly so anti the village yeah. and is actively taking steps to do something about it. So Monique pleads with him to stop this plan because she fears that a large number of people are going to get punished, basically. That if they succeed, if they kill number two, there will be reprisals. And the reprisals have the potential to be so terrible that they're going to affect a lot of people who don't have anything to do with this plot. Yeah, the village will essentially try and teach everyone a lesson by uh, inflicting some kind of punishment on everyone. Like, indiscriminately, they wouldn't necessarily just go after uh, the conspirators. They would basically try and do something that would send a message to everyone that this kind of insubordination will not be tolerated in the village. Yeah. And the watchmaker doesn't want to hear about it. He believes that he's acting purely out of principle. Hmm. And he says, you know, we're in this prison for life, but I've never met anyone here who has committed any crime. <laughs> And he wants to do something that the authorities cannot ignore. And his idea is that if the village is punished because of what they're going to do, it might wake people up and get them to uh, to fight back more than they already are. And there's, a, there's an interesting angle to this because the watchmaker very clearly has uh, a European accent. Mm. Um, I found it quite hard to place, but according to the Fallout Guide, the actor playing uh, number 51, the watchmaker, is Martin Miller, and that he was originally from a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that later became Czechoslovakia. I don't know whether it's where it is now the Czech Republic or Slovakia, but it was from that region. Mm. And so perhaps that is the accent, that regional mm. accent that he has. And that, combined with the fact that his age 
I mean, he looks to be in his 60s, mm. I would guess. To be in your 60s, in the 60s, in the late 60s, would make him a younger man during World War II. And if you view all of this from the perspective of someone who may have lived through World War II in that part of Europe, or, or frankly in pretty much any part of Europe, um, that was heavily occupied, it adds a completely different dimension to being part of a resistance that is willing to blow people up hmm. and that is willing to not be so concerned with the potential reprisals that will come with that because there's a bigger picture here. And that seems to be what what he wants to do. Yeah. And the, the fact that he has an accent and that his daughter is called Monique, hmm. but she has an English accent, uh, suggests a character who has at some point got out of of that region of Europe and come to Britain. And although you never really find out why the two of them are in the village, and indeed why both of them are in the village, yeah. why would you bring a father and daughter both? Yeah, what's the reason why they're, why they're there? Yeah, yeah if, he, if there was something that he knew, you would just bring him. So why bring her? It must be something that they both know or that they're using her as a way of trying to control him or yeah. who knows what it could have been. But the, the, the fact that this is the era that it's set in and, and his age places him in that particular era during World War II, I think, adds a new dimension to the, the idea of what it is that he's trying to do. Yeah, it's somebody who has uh, stood against um, seemingly a fascist regime. And I think that allegory is being carried forward here in The Prisoner by saying that, you know, the, you know these people are, although we're referring to them as, as jammers, and there's an interesting political context to how jammers relate to various events from a socio-political view as well i think they they can also be viewed as as the resistance yeah it's an in, it's an interesting aspect especially in light of what he uh, what he says about the fact that no one in the village um, as far as he can see has committed a crime and i think there's there's that feeling that he's aware of of persecution he knows what it is and he he you know, that's why he doesn't want to hear anything that from uh, number fifty, that would steer away his plans, because basically he, you know, he feels that what he's doing is the right thing to do, potentially because he has been involved in, as you say, some kind of resistance before to something. So, although the prisoner was always very careful not to date itself in any particular way, I think it's interesting that this this thread exists because it does add a strange sort of real life element to. Uh, to what the story might actually be about. It's not just about the world of the village. This is actually something which is telling us about about the real world and maybe, you know, the context of, uh, that the series was trying to address. Yes, well, I, I have seen the list of malcontents. But you, it might interest you to know that you happen to be top of the bill. I'll do my best to live up to it. So we now cut back to uh, number two in the Green Dome and what his grand plan is for the manipulation of number six in, in sort of this scheme. And two and 100 are uh, getting cameras ready for the inevitable visit that number six will make to number two in order to warn him about an assassination attempt on his life. You see that as they're kind of talking about this being part of the plan, they, they cut to, um, I think, what's probably the uh, the map of the village that surrounds the, the strange seesaw mm. um, 
uh, machine in the middle of that uh, of the supervisor's room, and you can see, well, a not necessarily geographically correct layout of the village, and you <laughs> see a red dot. Uh, representing number six, moving from number six's house, uh, making his way towards uh, number two's, the Green Dome. Yeah, and it cuts between shots of this red dot moving across the map <laughs> to shots of number six walking around the village. And there's lots of stock footage from other episodes. In fact, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that in at least one shot, you can see that number six is wearing his black suit from Arrival and <laughs> not his village suit. <laughs> Well, that's a big drink for the drinking game. <laughs> uh, but eventually he makes his way through several episodes worth of uh, cut footage <laughs> and uh, arrives at the Green Dome. And number two pretends to be surprised and uh, asks him whether he'd like coffee or tea, despite previous number twos, knowing exactly what he'll drink and how many sugars he'll have in it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it does make number two come across as slightly unprepared and a bit clueless about things which is obviously the exact opposite of of what we've seen of uh, of this number two this guy is calculating and he has a, he has a plan and everything is working according to that plan like clockwork so it's kind of funny that they make this reference to uh what drink number six would prefer because uh, it's one of the iconic things in the first episode mm. uh when he uh he says he drinks tea with lemon and when number six delivers the warning that there is a plot to kill number two, number two is entirely dismissive of it, doesn't <laughs> believe it. Says, you know, we have a list of malcontents and you are top of the bill. <laughs> <laughs> Which I kind of feel like number six would be disappointed if he wasn't top of the list yeah. of malcontents. You know, he is the malcontent of all malcontents. That's why the other malcontents have gone to him for help when there's something going wrong. Indeed, that's the nature of the show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the fact that there is nothing wrong with being the malcontent. If you you know, if the system you're in is uh, is flawed, actually his you know, he I think he uh he likes the fact that he is resisting it. So mm. uh yeah, it's kind of sad there are others, but actually it ties into what you were saying right at the beginning of the episode, which is like Checkmate, this is one of those episodes which talks about the fact that um the village almost you know, its propaganda machine likes to portray everything as working in in this wonderful community. But it's clear that there are people who not only are not happy with it, because we have seen that before, people have just said, you know, that they're resigned to the fact that they, they're you know they stuck there, but actually people who are actively trying to uh, resist the village or indeed try and bring it down. Now, clearly in an episode like Checkmate, number six has interacted with those characters, but it's strange that they don't bring it up again and again so they've 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 toyed with the idea of introducing other characters who are um uh, involved in these kind of plots but this is one of the few times and probably the last time in the series uh for a while that they really are going after this idea that there are people in the village who are actively trying to take it down and certainly they're a lot more coordinated than the people who we meet in Checkmate are. Because here they actually have a plan. There's something which is going on. There's a real a system in place. Mm. Um, and whereas in Checkmate, they're kind of all drawn into number six's plan. Um, they're not as, uh, yeah, certainly they're not as organised as, as the Jammers. And like I said earlier as well, the Jammers weren't referenced before. This is clearly a new concept which they brought in, which is an interesting one uh, that does fit in with the mythology and is actually kind of something that advances it a little bit as well. Yeah, and number two basically trolls number six in this conversation, hmm. right? Because he says, oh, yeah, we thought these jammers had tried to get to us through a rube and, hmm. you know, didn't think it would turn out to be you. Mm -hmm. He's he's so 
dismissive and deliberately antagonistic about the whole thing. Mm. Uh, that number six basically throws a strop and says, well, you know, you, you might find out that it's true uh, very suddenly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, stomps his way out of the room, clearly upset at not being believed. Yeah, and just as he's leaving, it's clear that uh, number two knows that his plan has actually worked. And what he does is he... Um, asks uh, an unseen uh, camera and sound operator to uh, just confirm that the two cameras uh, that they had on the room whilst number six were there were actually recording have actually uh, got footage that they can use later on of number six interacting with number two. Yeah, and the voice of the camera operator who responds is Robert Rietti. (laughs) Who else? (laughs) So we know that he is in this episode at least once, maybe more than once. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Nice of exciting news for you. Your citizen council officially proclaimed Thursday, the day after tomorrow, as an appreciation day. The day when we pay due honour to those brave and noble men who govern us so wisely. So, number six meets back up with number 50 again to tell her that he wasn't believed when he tried to warn number two. And in the background, we hear the dulcet tones of Fenella Fielding announcing Appreciation Day, <laughs> uh, a day for celebration of the men who govern us so wisely. Which is strange, because we know from previous episodes, including some that have definitely taken place before this, I think, that there have been uh, female number twos. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not always uh, the men who govern. And certainly mm. none of them have actually governed very wisely at all, <laughs> male or female. <laughs> And there's also going to be the reveal of an appreciation monument, which is going to happen. Yes, we don't know how long Six has been there, but this is clearly something new that's happened. Whereas I think it's interesting that when they've had um, episodes like uh, Free For All, they've also implied that there are these there are these kind of formal events that take place in the world of the village. Um, but maybe the appreciation day, as we'll come to learn, is actually quite a unique thing. It's not like an annual um, event. But it does imply that there is um, a hierarchy in a way that the village operates its uh, its chain of command in choosing and handing over the role of number two. So six and fifty now know that they basically have to take matters into their own hands hmm. to find out what the plot is, because number two doesn't believe them, or so they think. So they go to the watermaker shop at night, and inside, looking around, they find plans for a replica of the Great Seal of Office, Mm. which is this gigantic piece of bling, like a sort of Lord Mayor's gold chain (laughs) with an enormous circular medallion on it. um, That I think reads number two chief administrator. Yeah. So it's the first time we've actually had a a title ascribed to number two. It adds to the idea of this being a a ceremonial role. Um, But the fact that they actually... You know, they've always referred to the person taking that role as uh, as number two. They've never said what that person is. But the fact they're in, you know, it's kind of interesting that from a from the perspective of how um, the show deals with the ideas of a uh, of uh, bureaucracy and and a, you know and a and the government structure that maybe um, uh, number six has rejected in his former life. The fact they essentially are treating uh, number two as the equivalent of of a very senior civil servant <laughs> in the hierarchy of uh, of the village is kind of interesting. 
Yeah, and this bit always makes me hungry because although the replica has a bomb inside, uh, what this giant golden medalli reminds me of is those foil-covered chocolate pennies you get <laughs> at Christmas. And you know you can get, like, the, the huge versions. Yeah. <laughs> now I want some chocolate. Yeah, I think later on the episode number two wishes it was chocolate as well. <laughs> Instead of actually being filled with, uh, I think, what looks like plastic explosives. Yeah. <laughs> so now they know what the plan is going to involve that they're going to use this replica that the watchmaker has constructed to uh, blow up number two. Yeah, with this bomb inside, it'll be used during the Appreciation Day uh, ceremony. And uh, so in terms of the plotting of this episode, what is nice is, although it's kind of a convoluted plot, it's a bit of a strange plot as well, (laughs) they do find interesting ways of, of hanging elements of the plot throughout the episode. It's not like they reveal everything up front. I mean, they, they have kept a lot of the real machinations of, of number two's planned sequence revealed very slowly, which I think is quite a nice aspect of, uh, of how this episode is written. Yeah. So number six goes back to see number two again, yeah. but it's surprised to find it's another number two. And this isn't the first time that number two has switched mid-episode. Um, and he must be getting used to just turning up and oh, there's just another person in the chair. <laughs> But this isn't just any old number two. This appears to be the actual number two. Yeah. And all the other ones have been interim number twos. <laughs> now, how canonical this can be, I really don't know. Because how how does this even fit with free-for-all yeah. when they elect number two? Or, you know, albeit that free-for-all was an elaborate chairman or just mess with number six. So maybe mm-hmm. the elections were a nonsense. Yeah, I mean, we've had... I mean, like you said, there have been... You know, the, you know, the concept of the show relies on there being a different number two uh, each episode. There have been some um, number twos who've had more than one uh, attempt at breaking number six. And there have been cases where the real number two's identity has been concealed throughout the episode and has been revealed later on. You know, most notably in Arrival, when, you know, the show has been introduced, the village has been revealed to uh, number six and then sort of two-thirds of the way in, uh, we find that the original number two in that episode has been replaced by uh, Inspector Wexford and George <laughs> Baker sort of halfway through. It's interesting that, you know, they've they've introduced the idea of uh, a number two changing. They've introduced the idea of different number twos appearing um, to antagonise number six. But here, the idea is potentially all the other number twos we have seen thus far have been interim number twos and that this slightly older number two is the original one and he has been away and he is back now and i do wonder if this is you know it's it could just be slightly mischievous on the part of um the creative team because maybe you know i've I wonder how much of this is freedom on the part of uh the writer michael cramoy because maybe he was just told this is the general concept behind the show. And he decided that he would introduce something new, which is that, you know, there's this interesting plot about an assassination attempt, but the reveal of the plot also um, explains some interesting mythology that hadn't actually been addressed properly in the show. Um, And maybe they thought, you know what, this is an interesting, slightly confusing way of presenting the world of the village. I mean, it's such a weird place anyway. Mm. And the, the failure to present a clear hierarchy or power structure. I mean, what's strange than, you know, 11 episodes in, they reveal that the new number twos have actually been rotating 
in the place of uh, the actual number two who has been away and has just come back. I mean, it's just a very, it's a very strange idea. And it's never returned to again. It's never really, you know, it, it's a bit of an isolated concept, but it, it's an interesting one in terms of explaining where these other number twos are coming from. And, and maybe that's why they're being churned through, because they all have a, a shot at breaking number two. Um, but now the original is back. And uh, I think it's just, yeah, it's just a strange, it's a strange concept, which doesn't really fit in with the canon of the rest of the number twos, but does present something which is just as plausible and uh, obtuse as anything else we've seen. Yeah, so this outgoing number two, played by, and apologies in advance, I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Andre Van Giesegem. Hmm. Giesegem? Giesegem? I can't you, help. You say Giesegem, I say Giesegem. <laughs> uh, yes, by, uh, by him. And th- there's a really odd shot of the chair rising up with him in hmm. it that's really grainy, even on the Blu-ray. Yeah, it's it's like the equivalent of um, you know in the opening credits and you see uh, Rover bubbling up to the surface. Mm. The first shot you see of um, is it the bubble rising, which is really grainy. Mm. Um, there's like you know the odd insert shot is um, is really grainy, and this one is really weird because it's I'm not sure if it's if it's a bad transfer of this one scene or if it's like being recorded onto videotape or something as an intermediate. I don't know, but it's very odd that they have this really jerky, grainy shot of the chair rising. It's very odd. Mm. But this number two uh, basically sees number six, has obviously never met number six before, but knows who he is. Yeah, and says, "Ah, oh, you've come to tell me of an imminent threat to my life." <laughs> Tomorrow I hand over to my successor. I retire. Perhaps they're trying to save a pension. So the seemingly original number two says that the Darren Nesbitt number two, who he refers to as the heir presumptive, has already told him that uh, number six is going to come and warn him as he has every other interim number two of this uh, assassination attempt. Yes, and when number six rejects this mm-hmm. as nonsense, uh, the old number two says, oh yes, the psychiatrist warned me that you wouldn't believe me when I when I said this. So clearly he's been looking at psychological reports on number six and learning all about him, which you would do given that he is top of the list of malcontents apparently <laughs> in the village. Uh, but he says, oh, you know, I've, I've got some footage to prove it. So up on the big screen, we then see footage of two completely other number twos that we've never seen before, both apparently being warned by number six of an imminent threat to their life, that the Darren Nesbitt number two has clearly had someone spliced together using the footage that he took very recently. Yeah, now I'm, I'm really intrigued about this because on one hand, these are two random people who have been inserted in order to confuse number six you know by showing this footage and making you know number six look as if he's made these claims before to the other interim number twos it just makes him seem even more crazy if there are just if there's footage which he he can't even remember being part of in some (laughs) way what i did think about when i looked at the two people they have uh playing the two additional number twos um, and I don't know if this is intentional, but the first one does look a little bit 
like a bad Leo McKern look-alike. Yeah. And the second one looks a little bit like a Rachel Herbert uh, look-alike. And I don't know if that's intentional, but it it could be that they have spliced in footage of other interim number twos, which supports the idea that those two number twos and potentially the other ones have been interim number twos, uh, but they just couldn't get those actors back to reprise their roles um, or have like stock footage that they could actually use. Yeah. And number six accuses him of doctoring the footage. And the old number two says, well, what, you know, why would they bother doing this? I'm retiring. Mm. And number six replies that maybe they're trying to save the pension. Yeah. And it's clear at this moment that number two realises that, you know what, maybe there is something going on. Um, he has a look on his face where he realises that maybe not everything is as is, is as it seems. And, you know, he's he's returned from somewhere back to the village to take to take on his role once more as number two. But it's clear that even he is maybe slightly concerned about what has happened in his absence and what exactly the village overlords actually have planned for him. Yeah, because he must have witnessed so many plots being carried out on people in the village, so many elaborate ways of tricking people, that he's got to know that it is entirely possible (laughs) that they could try and pull something like that on him. Because they have the ability to do this. And the guy waiting to take over from him is presumably very keen to ingratiate himself with his new uh, overlords, (laughs) effectively. Uh, Yeah, so number six leaves number two rather concerned about the whole situation. And he goes to speak to number 50 again and says, you know, they've tried to discredit me, basically, so that I, I can't warn this other number two, what's going to happen. And number 50 spots number 100, and she recognises him as the man who's been conspiring with her father. And number six says, oh, I've seen him leaving number two's house. Mm. So clearly they are now putting two and two together and realising that this this other man, this man that number 50 had seen but didn't know. As indeed this episode is putting two and two together. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there. <laughs> Um, that, that he must be the conduit between the incoming number two and the plot and that all of this is being orchestrated um, not by the resistance but by the incoming number two mm. in order to assassinate the outgoing number two and put all of the blame on number 50's father. Yeah. Uh, so watching all of this, watching this whole conversation is the old number two who is watching it all live on the screen and he himself is now also dawn it's dawning on him that this could be very real. He can't he can't know it. He must in the back of his mind be thinking, Oh, but maybe these villagers are actually playing a very mm. elaborate trick on me. Mm. It's it's that point where if you spent so long manipulating reality to the villagers, how can you be certain what reality is yourself? Mm. Um but it's it's clearly playing on his mind because he asks Number 22, who is the lackey that the new number two was talking to earlier, who earlier seemed a bit concerned about the plan. I think, didn't he say something like, Plan Division Q is still murder or something like that? So he's clearly not entirely happy with what's going on, but he is in on it with the new number two. And, uh, And the old number two asks him to get the tape from the Visual Record Bureau of number six talking to 
the the Darren Nesbitt number two. And uh, and number 22 says that no such recording exists. Hmm. He responds immediately, there is no recording. And when number two questions how he can possibly know this when he doesn't actually work at the Visual Record Bureau himself, number 22 says, oh, I can't explain. Hmm. And you see number two completely crestfallen at this point. He says, the fact that you won't explain explains everything. Now, I think that this was a way of number 22 himself warning the old number two of what was going to happen. Because if if he if he was okay with the plan going ahead, he would have just said, oh yeah, of course, sir, I'll go and get it. And then he would have gone off and spoken to the new number two and they would have doctored something and yeah, put it together. put something together, yeah. Yeah, but, but the fact that he immediately responds by saying that does not exist when he can't possibly know that... It's his own cryptic way, I think, of trying to warn the outgoing number two yeah. that's, that something is going on. Yeah, so clearly this is, although this is a plan which is being engineered by the village overlords and being mediated by the acting Darren Nesbitt number two, it's clear that not everyone is happy with it. Um, and certainly there's a statement that comes later on which implies that not everyone in the village even on the wrong side of it, is always a bad person. They they are kind of, you know, they kind of can see, you know, they can see what's wrong sometimes. Mm. And I think it's almost the ones who have even the faintest hint of any conscience who are also the ones who the village is, you know, is most likely to turn on. So maybe that's the problem with this number two. Maybe they got him out so they could start engineering this whole thing. Maybe he wasn't able to, you know, if you do view the idea that he is, the original, and then whilst he's been away, there've been interims coming in. Maybe they got rid of him for a while because he wasn't able to crack number two. You know, maybe they felt that he wasn't he wasn't the right person. So not only do they do that, but they you know, they send him away only to bring him back and now take him out in this plot. And the other aspect of it is, given that there are those shots of other number twos um, in the doctored footage, if they're not doctored, I do like to think that occasionally. They're part of like missing missing adventures <laughs> that may have taken place in the prisoner. So like like lost episodes featuring those two uh, those two number twos who tried to break him, and you know we'll never know. But I'm sure they exist in some kind of fan fiction somewhere. <laughs> but it, it, it's interesting because we have seen before members of the village staff, if you can call them that, mm. showing loyalty to a particular number two. Yeah. Particularly in Hammer and Twanville. Yeah, when Basil Hoskins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like that. Um, so whether this is number 22 having an amount of loyalty towards the outgoing number two, yeah. where he wants to warn him, or it could be number 22 essentially feeling really uneasy with the idea that the village are going to bump off their own people, because yeah. he's one of their own people. Yeah. So it it could be them thinking, well, it you know, it's okay to do it to the villagers, but it's not on to do it to us because aren't we on your side? Yeah. Um, it's it's got to alarm a significant number of people who are taking part in this plot that this plot would even be given the green light. Yeah, if the village can essentially turn, you know, can I mean all these people, like you say, they you know they watch the village do unspeakable things to their own residents. And then all of a sudden you realise that if the village were to ultimately turn on itself, then no one is safe. And it is it is ultimately the kind of chaos that ensues when something as uh, insane as the concept of the village decides to take out its own people. 
you know, it becomes a complete free-for-all, mm. you know, and no one is safe, and then no one is really certain what side they're on. So then we get a brief scene of the uh, incoming number two reporting back to his overlords on the phone, saying it's all going like clockwork. Number six is fully convinced of everything that's happening. There's going to be no problems. Mm. And evidently number six is not... I don't think number six is ever really fully convinced. Mm. I think he always remains a little sceptical yeah. about what's happening, as as he does with all things. Mm. But you, you kind of get the feeling that the incoming number two is getting a little bit complacent here. If he thinks that he's got number six on the hook and that it's all going to be fine, that's the point where you become complacent and that's the point where it's going to fall apart for you. Yeah. So we then cut to the old people's home again. Um, An interesting shot here because uh, in the establishing shot, you actually see, I think it's the Admiral from Arrival. Mm. Um, because uh, it's it looks like the same guy dressed as Dennis the Menace again, yeah. who we haven't seen in a while. So again, it's just the use of a, of a offcuts of footage from previous episodes. Um, and we get another announcement uh, over the village Tannoy from Fenella Fielding, which is again uh, saying that uh, it's Appreciation Day. Yes. And number 15 and number 6 are meeting again. Hmm. They're discussing why the people running the village would want to kill the outgoing number two in this way. And number six's theory is that they can kill the outgoing number two in such a way that it places the blame on people within the village and that way it doesn't alarm other people working for the village that this was actually an inside job and that they were being killed by their own people, effectively. And number 50 is is just deeply concerned about what's going to happen to her father yeah um because evidently he's been set up to take the fall for it all so what's going to happen to him once number two is dead and he's the one that they take the blame who takes the blame for it because the village is capable of doing terrible things um to people and so it isn't even a question of being worried that they might execute him for it 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 goes far beyond that. I mean, goodness only knows what they would do to someone who had done that. Yeah, it it's strange because the show so far has shown has shown what the village is capable of. It's shown what the village does to residents, and this episode adds a very sinister layer to it as well, which is the lengths that they will go to to essentially not only punish their own uh, citizens but actually use them as ploys to engineer events designed to take out their own people as well which is it it's a very kind of orwellian kind of nightmare situation i mean this is this is big brother turning on itself almost but still manipulating those whom it oversees as a means to uh, justify its actions and to keep everything seemingly under control I'm sorry, but there's nothing that i can do the ceremony can take place without the seal the seal is the ceremony so number six goes to visit number two again, <laughs> the old number two that is, to tell him that he's uh, he's not being assassinated, he's being executed. And and the outgoing two now realises what's going to happen to him. Uh, because of course number six knows when and how it's going to happen because they've discovered the bomb inside the Great Seal. And number two at first seems resigned to this. Um, you know, he says, if you try and prevent this, it's only delaying it for me. He says, you've never understood us, number six. <laughs> this number two clearly knows how ruthless the village is and how 
wedded it is to its ideology that he he thinks that there's nothing that he can do to prevent him being executed. Mm. That's what they've decided to do. Um, and too clearly has some sympathy for the village residents because when number six says that he's concerned that there will be reprisals mm. against people, number two is disturbed by this. Mm. So, you know, whereas some of the interim number twos, if that's what they are, that we've seen, don't seem to care less about the village residents. I mean, you just think about in Hammer into Anvil, mm. where you have an incredibly sadistic number two who really doesn't care. But this number two seems to have a, a sort of paternal feeling towards the village. If he's been number two for a very long time, if he's maybe even overseen the development of certain village functions, mm. then maybe the idea that something terrible is going to happen, not just to him, but to a lot of people in the village, is horrific for him. I do wonder if he is actually a number two who was himself somebody who ever understood what the village was about. Because he may have been placed there as a slightly naive person to oversee everything. And he might have been unwittingly a front for what the village was actually trying to do. So he it almost seems like he has he's pretended maybe for a while that he doesn't really understand um, how bad uh, the village is in an outward sense. But he knows internally what it is capable of. And maybe it's that realisation where he knows that it's a it's a place which is kind of rotten to its core. And actually, you know, although he doesn't like to talk about it, he knows exactly what the village can do. And th- there's a sense that maybe the village liked having him as the as the face of the thing. Maybe he was a friendly face for the, you know, for the residents. And maybe he liked to believe that what he was doing was actually not as uh, sinister or indeed sadistic as what was actually happening. He just felt that he was, you know, he was doing his job for the village, but he chose he chose to ignore what the village was actually doing. You know, I do get that sense. I can think of better ways to die and better causes to die for. And then we have yet another scene of the incoming number two on <laughs> the phone to his overlords. Uh, saying that it's all set to go and that uh, he stakes his future on it all working out. And I, you know, I, I see why they're doing this because they're clearly, you know, setting the incoming number two up for a massive fall when it mm. doesn't work out. But it, it feels like a slightly extraneous scene. It feels like something that was left in for time yeah. rather than value. If that makes sense. Well, they could have put more water skiing in. <laughs> they could have said, okay, and today it's uh, it's appreciation day. And the first thing that's going to happen is number six is going to go water skiing again. And they could have five minutes of him water skiing. <laughs> they have like water skiing formations <laughs> to uh, celebrate appreciation day. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, appreciation day is here. And uh, people are walking through the village carrying giant photos. They're like the ones from Free For All. Yeah. The vote ones, but they're just pictures of the outgoing number two and the incoming number two. And the band is playing and everyone's very happy. And they all gather in the usual place um, in front of the same place where they gave all the speeches in Free For All. And given that everything we know about you know, the villagers, you know, it's been it's been revealed to the audience. It's very sinister how they portray this as a as a friendly handover as uh, the old number two retires. I mean, he's he's back from wherever he has been uh, just to serve out a few days before his official retirement. And the fact that it's 
you know, the guy in the top hat, number 245, introduces this in a very jovial fashion. It's all, it is meant to be portrayed as a, a you know, as a time of celebration, but it's so sinister when you realise that the village is behind what's going to happen next um, through uh, through the new number two. Yeah. And number six and number 50 are in the crowd, presumably trying to see if there's anything that they can do yeah. in order to prevent this happening. Um, the ceremony is being conducted by number 245, who's wearing one of those sort of Undertaker-style hats <laughs> and refers to the villagers as dear friends, which is rather sinister. And uh, he's conducting the ceremony and, and making the announcements about how wonderful the outgoing number two is and how wonderful the new incoming number two is. And meanwhile, uh, the incoming number two is turning the dial on some rather nifty James Bond-style glasses <laughs> that appears to be some kind of two-way communication device with number 100, who is off in the crowd. It's the kind of tech that you might think that Joe Knighty would have. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, while all this is going on, what I love is that in the background, 245 is listing the outgoing number two's mm. achievements in the ceremony. And among them, I think you can hear him say, the construction of the new concert hall. Where on earth is the concert hall in the village? <laughs> Uh, a new wing on the library. Where the heck is the library? And the electrification of the clocks. Because apparently that's a really big deal. <laughs> they electrified the clocks. But if these were all things that the outgoing number two did, that does imply that he was there for a really mm. long time. If they constructed entire new buildings while he was there. And and that they would put the that he would oversee putting these in place, again, does suggest some element of care towards the village himself but maybe the uh you know the the actual function of the village has actually fundamentally changed whilst he's been away mm. um maybe that's what they're trying to get at as well so while all this is going on the old number two is looking very queasy <laughs> and uh six and fifty in the crowd are looking around to see uh where the threat might be coming from and number six sees light reflecting from a pair of binoculars of someone up in the bell tower. Yeah. And we see that the watchmaker is up in the bell tower looking over everything that's going on, um, presumably looking for a good vantage point where he can see exactly when the correct person is going to be wearing the seal of office. So six and 50 rush over to the bell tower to try and do something and as as we found out when we spoke to Annette Andre she never filmed in Port Marion so that's mm. not her running across <laughs> um the the grounds in Port mm. Marion that must be a, an extra uh dressed up as number 50 um and they go to rush up the bell tower just as to see this place on the old number two <laughs> and he looks like he's going to throw up at this point <laughs> um but number six makes it to the top of the bell tower and prevents the watchmaker from detonating the bomb so uh the ceremony is still continuing and num well the uh the old number two um he keeps on talking um clearly worrying about the fact that he's got the seal around his neck and not sure when it's going to blow up um and uh it's kind of sad i mean he's he's talking about the fact that uh you know soon it's going to be the time when uh, he's going to be leaving them again suggesting a slightly paternal um, a relationship that he has uh, with the village residents. Uh, we then cut back to uh, number six, who has the detonator. And number 100 has been sent by the new number two to find out uh, why the bomb hasn't gone off, because there's a limited amount of time. 
um, etc. And uh, uh, 100 is walking around here and he sees six emerging, I think, from the bottom of the bell tower. Mm. And then they uh, they get into a uh, into quite a serious scrap with, uh, you know, I think people being thrown over benches and things like that. <laughs> um, and uh, the whole time um, this is happening, I mean, they, they're really going after it. And what happens is uh, number 100 is clearly trying to get his hands on the detonator so that he can trigger it. Number six is resisting all of this. And the old number two, who's giving a speech, looks... Really, really shocked. I mean, if he looked sick before when he had the seal put on him, uh, he's now really concerned when he realises that the ceremony is just continuing. And the next thing that happens is uh, the seal of the office is taken off the old number two and then placed onto the new number two. (laughs) So clearly this plan um, that he he thought was going to take place with the seal blowing up when it was around his neck is not really working. And it's equally funny to see uh, the new number two look very, very concerned uh, (laughs) when the seal with an explosive device inside uh, is now being placed around his neck. And he now knows that something is very, very wrong because clearly the plan has not, you know, has not worked. The watchmaker hasn't triggered the device. Number 100 hasn't found out what is going on and hasn't actually uh, managed to deactivate and hasn't managed to uh, activate the device in time. Yeah, because what's going to be going through his head at that point is A, has something screwed up and the bomb hasn't worked, (laughs) uh, in which case he's going to get it in the neck for the, the plan failing. Quite literally. Yeah. Or B... Has this entire thing actually been people triple crossing him, and it was all a plan all along to kill him and blame it on yeah. somebody else? Because if if they're capable of doing this to the old number two, they've got to be capable of doing it to him as well. Or you know, has has something just delayed everything? He he can't he can't know that there's a big fight going on over mm. by the bell tower. He just doesn't understand why this is now hanging around his neck. And he looks like he just doesn't know what to do because the ceremony keeps going and he has to pretend that everything is fine, even though he's not got a bomb hanging around his neck. Um, and there's a kind of a weird thing that happens here, which is that, that number six, number 100 have had this fight and then it just seems to stop and number 100 just disappears after that. Yeah. And uh, I was reading in, I think it was uh, Rob Fairclough's book, that in the in the original version of the script, it actually has number two being the incoming number two, the Darren mm. Nesbitt number two, sends Rover off after them to try and sort the situation out. Mm. And that Rover kills number 100, which I think could have been really interesting because does that suggest that Rover saw 100 as the threat and not number six? Mm. Was Rover loyal to the old number two and not the new yeah. number two? Because presumably he he sent Rover off after them. And apparently in the, in the script, it was even said that Rover was going to uh, smother number 100 and then it was going to fill with blood, Yeah, um, which is a, a really gruesome idea and almost certainly too gruesome to have put on tv yeah. at that point but again suggests something weirdly biological about rove i just yeah. love the idea um but that didn't get put in to the the finished product but apparently they did film um the guy playing the 100 being smothered by rover and in arrival when you see you know that villager who gets chased off by the pond, by yeah. Rover, when everyone else is frozen. Who panics run. and runs away, and then he gets... Yeah. Yeah, he gets uh, 
captured by Rover and, and uh, pressed up against the um, uh, the rubber. Yeah. yeah, apparently that shot of him getting pressed against the rubber, you can see uh, there's a pink jacket underneath. And apparently that is actually this shot that they filmed of number 100 getting smothered. So that's actually Rover. Mark Eden Yeah. as number 100 in... Uh, this episode, yeah. they shot that, but then they decided not to use that, and then they may have inserted it into Arrival yeah. to represent the guy who was panicking. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a reverse drink at this point. Do you get two <laughs> drinks for that? I don't know. <laughs> um, but as as we see in the broadcast version, number 100 just vanishes for some reason. Yeah, so then Six is kind of back on the on the stage, isn't he, all of a sudden? Yeah. He's managed to make it all the way back to the... Uh, the main platform where he manages just to be able to you know, get access, uh, where we have both old and new uh, number twos there. Now, the new number two obviously still has uh, the seal of the office around his neck, uh, probably looking quite perturbed when he sees number six emerge. Uh, six then gives the detonator, which he retrieved from the watchmaker, to the old number two. Mm. And um, it's kind of interesting because you then realise that everyone is now aware of what's going on. The old number two has the detonator, which is basically the only leverage he has. Uh, Six knows that he's actually subverted this assassination attempt, which I suppose for Six, it's been the chance to make sure that with it not taking place, the village uh, does not plan any recriminations against you know anyone involved in the plot that would have ultimately taken out lots of village residents as well. And now we also realise that the new number two knows that uh, the guy whom he was uh, planning to assassinate now has the detonator for the device which is around his neck. Yeah. And uh, number six basically tells the old number two to just get in the helicopter and go. He says, <laughs> fly now, pay later. <laughs> just just go now. And if they're going to kill you, let it happen far away from the village where innocent people are not going to get hurt yeah. in reprisals. And, you know, maybe you'll get lucky and you'll be able to keep running from them. But just get in the helicopter and go. And uh, when the when the new number two tries to stop the old number two from leaving, he just kind of holds up the detonator and is like, ah, no, no, <laughs> can't come after me. And, uh, and he just legs it. And then there's that wonderful touch when the new number two tries to take the seal off. Number six grabs his hand and is shaking it forcefully and saying, oh, congratulations, it's, you know, it's been such a great event and i'm sure you'll get just as good a send-off when your time comes <laughs> as well and uh, as they're just standing there on the steps you hear the sound of the helicopter leaving in the background and uh the new number two knows that he is done for as the bar slams shut once again So we'd like to thank you for listening to our recap and discussion of the episode It's Your Funeral. Yeah, and it's odd seeing this right next to Hammer into Anvil in the running order mm. because this was filmed earlier than Hammer into Anvil but got placed after it in the UK running order. I believe in the US running order they got flipped back over again <laughs> so that this one came first. But there's a, a thematic link between them, I think, even though they were written by two different screenwriters, which is that in Hammer to Animal, what number six is effectively doing to that number two is jamming him. It's creating the illusion of something that 
alarms number two mm. to the point where number two obsesses over it and ultimately comes a cropper because of it because he believed that it was true he's you know he's chasing the ghost that number six is is putting out there mm. for him to to go after so it's odd that number six does that and then later learns of jamming it would yeah. make more sense for him to come across this idea of jamming in this episode and then when he encounters number two in Hamilton to Anvil to effectively use that and take it on board and jam that number two mm. effectively and there's there's also the link with the bomb really because in this yeah. one you've got a watchmaker who makes a genuine bomb and then in the next episode you've got the cuckoo clocks that number six deliberately makes number two think contains a bomb <laughs> yeah in order to freak him out so yeah I I do wonder if it would feel better the other way around yeah. not necessarily back to back but just with this coming earlier than hammer into anvil yeah but i think then you'd also have to deal with some of the other aspects it brings in like like other villagers and like you know like some of the you know the feeling that the villagers are placed with with a with a very warped sense of how it deals with its own citizens and also the people whom it decides to put in charge and what purpose they actually serve as well so it's strange because although it does seem, I think, I think at the top of the episode we were talking about how it feels a little bit disconnected from the rest of the prisoner episodes. Um, I suppose having rambled about it for this amount of time, we, you know, we probably come to a conclusion that maybe you know thematically it does fit in quite well with with other aspects of the show. Um, although clearly, you know, like you say, there are maybe different ways that you could place it in the order to make some of the aspects of the plot make more sense. But also, you know, it's a you know, it's a unique one amongst the seventeen, but one that enriches the mythology. But whether elements of it are really canon or not, I don't know if we'll you know we'll ever really know. But you know, maybe there are there are missing episodes which exist involving those two uh, those two number twos that we can look forward to one day. <laughs> Coming up now, as you mentioned earlier, we had the great pleasure of talking to wonderful Annette Andre who played number 50, a.k.a. Monique, a.k.a. the watchmaker's daughter, in this episode. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely wonderful to get the chance to uh, speak to Annette um, to talk about not only her role in the show, but also it was really great to talk about all the things she's done uh, throughout her career. She's certainly probably most well-known for being um, in Randall and Hopkirk, deceased. Yeah. But actually, I think it was just great to talk about her varied career on stage on screen um, her early career and also how it kind of took her around the world as well yeah yeah and it was it was a great pleasure to talk to her because several years before I ever watched The Prisoner the first two shows of that era that I really got into were The Avengers and Vandal and Hot Pet Deceased <laughs> um, I think they were playing them on ITV4 or ITV3 or something like that in the early evenings, um, maybe 15 years ago, and I would get home and, and sit down and watch them. And it, it, it was one of the first shows of that era that really made me fall in love with the style and the music and, and everything about it. So it was wonderful to talk to her, not just about The Prisoner, but about everything that she did in that era and afterwards. Information. Information. 
So we're delighted to be joined this time by Annette Andre, who memorably played number 50, the watchmaker's daughter, in the episode with the prisoner, It's Your Funeral. Hi, Annette. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to talk to you. It's, it's a pleasure. So I know that you originally trained as a ballet dancer. How did you first move into acting? I was an intent on being a ballerina, and I had a pretty good chance at doing so. But something happened. Uh, they chose me for um, the, the National Ballet Company. I was 15, and I started rehearsing with them. And then just into that, they suddenly discovered that I was 15 and not uh, able to work professionally. It was, it was illegal. You had to be 16 or over. And so they said, well, you know, that's it for now. And it was such a terrible blow that I couldn't face the fact that I might go on for another year just training. I was already trained, you know, um, and then maybe not even get in at the end of that. You never know on a second time round. Something just, just hit me and, and uh, I, I decided that I wouldn't do it anymore. And so I made the decision. I knew I'd be on the stage. I always wanted to be on the stage, kicking up my legs or doing something. <laughs> and um, I, I, that's what I w decided to do. So I went into theatre and radio and eventually television out there, because television in Australia didn't start till the mid-50s. So when you were doing sort of very early Australian television, it, it must have been in the sort of very early days of sort of live plays and, and that kind of thing going out. Um, what was that like to be involved in? Terrifying. Because <laughs> none of us knew what to do. You know, it was a new, totally new ground for all of us, including the directors and the producers and the, the cameramen. Um, I've, obviously, they'd had some training and probably been abroad, you know, whatever. Um, but for us, it was a whole learning process. And on top of that, you had to do it in front of a live, not in front of a live audience, but it was going out live. Mm -hmm. And half the time the sets were not very well built. <laughs> <laughs> and things would fall down or handle usual sort of things that you think are jokes, but they weren't. And uh, it was a very, very interesting learning process because you had to know your stuff. You really had to know what and learn quickly what you were doing, how to hit marks and without looking at the ground and saying, oh, this is where I've got to be, all that sort of thing. So uh, it, it was an, a really interesting time you know, to be a pioneer, I suppose, in, in Australia. Over here, it had been going for years, so, so everybody, and in Britain. Um, so it was, it was fun. And it was terror. That's all happened. <laughs> was it a very different dynamic? Although it was going out live, is it a different dynamic to be just on a set rather than being in front of live audience that you can get some kind of feedback from when you're performing? Yeah. Yes, it was. And that was another thing you had to get used to because in front of you were cameras, men with their heads inside things, you know, and, and, and people on the floor going, giving us uh, signals and to cut or go or 
whatever it was they did in those days for live, it was a little bit more than they do now. And um, uh, and then the laugh, if you wanted to have a laugh, no one was there to laugh. So, you know, nothing from, from people around you, they were busy with their own work. It was, um, it was a colder, do uh, you understand what I mean by cold, a colder atmosphere yeah. and, a, and a, a technique that wasn't as, as um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for, spontaneous mm. as you have on stage. You're disciplined on stage, but there's also a spontaneous reaction because of the, of the uh, audience. Mm. Yeah. So how did the move to London come about? Um, in Australia, we were so far away, so isolated in those days. You know, plane travel took three days to get to England, and um, you felt you were on the not not on this earth. You felt you were somewhere else, alien. So it was a, a long trip and a big decision to make. But if you wanted to continue with your career, you really needed to come abroad. You needed to. Britain or America. Britain was easier to get to for us. You know, America had quota systems and all that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, people would come over, actors and actresses would come over and work in Britain for maybe a couple of years. And that's what I thought. I'll go over there for a couple of years. A couple of years turned to be 38. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, that's how I started off. I, I worked hard, collected my fare, and jumped on a, a boat and went to Italy first. Um, I have, I'm half Italian, so I thought, I've really got to go and have a look at Italy. You know, I was always drawn by foreign parts. I always thought, oh, I'd love to go. So I went to Italy, and I did work in Italy. I did um, a couple of... Uh, film small parts. I mean, one was just a, an extra, really, and the other one was a small part with Louis Chevalier in a, in a movie called Panic Button, which I've never seen. And uh, then I was um, found by a director who came over to Rome. I lived there for about six or seven months, and a director, English director, came over. Then we were talking, and he said, I'm doing a, a musical in London and I'd like you to be in it. You know, they tested me, they gave me an audition and things and my, uh, I was singing, but my singing voice wasn't good enough. It was a musical, it wasn't good enough for it. But uh, I had stage training and he said, I, I want you to come to England, you're lost here. So I did and that's how it started. I was in a theatrical performance of um, uh, Vanity Fair put to music and worked with some wonderful actors and actresses and and that was the start of things for me. I, I got an agent through that and uh, and then things went on from there. I went I went mostly into television because television was getting to be quite big here in when I say here I mean in England um, uh, at the time. And I started getting film and television work, um, which introduced me to Roger Moore for The Saint. And um, The Saint series I did 
I think it was five or six episodes of the same throughout the, the series, mm-hmm. which was quite a lot. And then other things, uh, you know, popped up. I was I worked very very uh, busily and and well during the sixties there, ending with um, the film Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Ophelia, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a uh, an absolutely amazing experience to work with with those actors, including Buster Keaton. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Zero Nostel and all these wonderful people. Uh, it was just fabulous and I learned I learned a lot from that. So you did quite a lot of those ITC shows that are now sort of considered cult classics. So as you say, there was The Saint, um, The Avengers, The Prisoner, Random Hopkirk Deceased. Yep. Why do you think they have retained such sort of cult popularity status over the decades? Do you know, I've often thought that I talk with my husband about it because um, he was involved in, over here in America, he's a writer and producer and was involved in a lot of all those series, some of which are, in, you know, well known in, in our era there. Um, Man from Uncle and all of that. It was because, I don't know, we, we, we've always said, who would have believed back then that we would still be here all these years later, these years later, talking about these things with people still enjoying them and younger people. I keep, I get things from fans saying, my son's now joined me, we're watching the reruns, and he's loving it, and he's about 15, I mean, it's it's amazing, we have no idea. Talking to people, fans and people, and looking back on it, I think it was a time when there was a certain glamour to it, it was usually, you know, the the dresses, the costumes and the dresses in it, mm. pretty good. You know, there was the 60s stuff and the 70s and colourful and interesting and new then, mm. but still retains a flavour now that people look back at. They know the Beatles or they know, you know, quite a lot about it. And I think, too, they weren't, some of them had an element of comedy in them, Randall and Hopkirk did. We strived to try to get that even more from it. The Saint had a touch. The Avengers had little touches of that wonderful British comedy. And you never saw people having their heads blown off. Or um, it, it wasn't. We had guns and people got shot, or you know, bust ups on fisty fights and all that sort of thing. But it wasn't. It was a little outside of reality, mm. and I think people enjoy that. It's a slight fantasy, and it's something that, you know, everyone likes to see a good person. Mm. <laughs> they like to see the hero. Today, it's so much of anti-heroes, and it's, it's in the series today, so many of them are aggressive mm. and brutal and and a lot are very ugly, I find. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people like them. Some of them are very popular, and that's fine. I just think it was a, 
a different time and held an audience, I can't really explain it. But but I think there's a lot. From what I've heard of people say, oh, we just enjoy them so much because, you know, they're not they're not so aggressive. You you have you had the drama, but you didn't have all the blood and everything going on. <laughs> and I think in normal times, I think people prefer that. You know, it's good to have a change and you see some and some of some things are absolutely excellent. They may be violent nowadays, but they can be extremely but they've got to be well done. They've got to have good scripts. They've got and I think the scripts today are really not all that great on the whole. So you worked with Roger Moore several times. What was he like to work with? Oh Roger was loved. I mean he was he was one of my favourite people. And he he was always calm and um, funny. We he loved to laugh, and I loved to laugh. And we used to have wonderful times. You know, he'd tell a joke, and and we'd play practical jokes on people. And <laughs> it was kindergarten. <laughs> so uh, and he was he was what you don't find so much today. He was a gentleman. He really was, and he helped me so much from from day one when I worked with him. Uh, there was a problem on the set with the director, and and Roger just walked me through it, mm. calmed me down, and and I was his friend forever. <laughs> yeah, no, he was he was just a lovely man, and was was so nice to everybody. Everybody loved him. You know, all the people on the uh, working the the. the the grips, the people behind the scenes, and the cameraman. He just was lovely to everybody, and and um, he taught me a lot of lessons. I found him an amazing teacher from a lot of angles, and and he knew he knew what his limits were, but he had he had such presence on the screen. In contrast, I suppose Patrick McGowan has a reputation for being quite a difficult person to work with. Yes. Um, if, if that might be an understatement. I have to say um, it was a very difficult series to work on. To begin with, I went on uh, with the script and the whole thing there and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what this was about. I didn't have a clue. And I actually asked a couple of the actors, and particularly, um, oh, he was one of the uh, one of the um, regulars in it because there are only very few regulars, and we had more than one episode. Alex, uh, Alex, Alexis Kenner. Alexis, that's it. Yeah. Um, and I asked him, "Can you tell me what this is about? What am I doing? Tell me about this." He said, "I don't know." <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't helpful, and I couldn't approach Patrick to tell me. He just looked down on me, and then um, I found him extremely cold, which was not bad for the part and for what the thing was, you know, because by his being cold and not looking at me, when we were working together, he had some actors do this, not a lot, but it's not good for the other actor 
they look past you, they don't look at you. And we had a couple of close scenes, and I needed him to look at me, and he wouldn't. And that may have spurred me on a bit, because I've looked at the episode, and I quite liked my performance in it. And I think that probably came because of Patrick, even though I disliked him intensely. And I found that he could be very... What what really came to it is that uh, we were being directed by a really lovely man that I knew, Bob Asher. And one day Patrick came in and got a bit upset by something Robert said to him. And he just abused him on the set in front of everybody. And that is not kosher. That is not professional as far as I'm concerned. You don't do that to a, a, a anybody but a res respected, kind man like Bob Asher. That you just don't do that. And that really, that said it for me. And, and I was never able to, to get on with him after that. I talked to him occasionally, you know, I mean, I, we weren't battling on the set. But all I can say is that possibly because he was what he was, I gave a better performance. <laughs> and I have heard other women, other actresses say that they just didn't like working with him. So maybe he did it purposely, I don't know. Did you do any location filming in Port Marion? No. Most of us didn't. I know some people were lucky, and they did. Um, I met an actress when I was down there, uh, what's it, not this year, last year, when I was there last year. But she had come down and done some scenes. They just did a few in Port Marion so that they could use them, you know, at odd times. But most of the actors I know, none of us went down to film. So we were watching the episode very recently, and it looks seamless. It, it you know, whatever the the kind of uh, backlots that some of the external bits were being filmed on that weren't really external, it looks for all the world like it. It was in Port Marion. Absolutely, absolutely, it was done beautifully. It just all fell into place. Having been down there now, I can understand why they they didn't film and bring people down because they, each episode was a new lot of people. It's so difficult to get to. Mm. And then, um, you know, putting people up and the weather and the difficulties, lots of difficulties. The Prisoner sounds like it was, uh, it was a difficult experience, maybe a difficult kind of uh, production to be involved in. Did you ever um, experience the same thing on any of the other ITC shows you worked on or were they much more uh, collegial and, and friendly? For The Prisoner, it was really, it was fine. Everybody was lovely, hmm. you know, pretty much. I mean, you always get discord somewhere or other, but no. It was just Patrick, and as he was the leading light in every which way, you know, he wrote it, produced it, sometimes directed, hmm. um, that I think he, his mood hmm. pervaded, but it didn't affect the atmosphere on the set particularly, I don't think, not amongst, you know, but it was, it was, a, it, it was discord in that, yes. And of course, in, in some things that you do, you'll find that some are more difficult than others. 
I never, I never worked in one where I didn't understand what it was about. I mean, that was, that was the only one that I, and it's only recently that I've started to think, oh, I see what it is. Yes. It was very clever. It was actually amazingly thought out. And, uh, the, you know, the, the, the conception of it was quite brilliant. And I can understand now that, um, you know, it was so popular. And when mostly other things, I, I did know what it was all about and, and a lot more about what I was doing. But uh, some things are just um, very good to work on and you have a wonderful time. Or there's a lot of upheaval. So, you know, it makes it interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you always go in and say, isn't it a happy, happy day? No. <laughs> so, Randon Hopkirk Deceased was one of the first shows from that era that I really fell in love with, along with The Avengers. Um, what was it like going into making that? With was it? Did it seem like a, a very unusual idea at the time that one of the main characters was going to be a ghost? Well, yes, it was. When I first heard about it, I thought, "Oh, this is oh, this has got to be ridiculous." You know, yeah, I don't think I want to do it. I don't think I want to do that. But they talked me into it, and I did. The reason uh, that why I was attracted eventually to it was that Mike Pratt was in, and I'd worked with Mike two or three times before, and I liked him so much. So I thought, okay, well, if Mike's doing it, okay. I didn't know Kenny. Mm-hmm. I'd never met him. So uh, when I when I went there, I knew Mike, and that was fine. And I was introduced to Ken, who seemed to be pretty nice. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was wonderful to work on. Mm-hmm. It was hard work. And it's very taxing to do a, a whole series. And it was tough on Mike because he was literally almost never off. I mean, he was always in it. Ken would get moments to go off because he'd have to disappear. Mm-hmm. And then I would be either in the office or kidnapped or tied up somewhere or watching <laughs> it. And, uh, and Mike was, was there. But they were absolutely fabulous the three of us were were a trio of it was just it was lovely working with them and there's a good atmosphere on the set because of that and um you know there's always certain things that that are not quite good or are better or whatever but hard work and and odd problems from time to time but I I enjoyed that. It was it was just lovely working with the with the two boys. And um, the thing about them was that in those days, uh, the girl in the in the series was usually there for decoration, and a little bit except for the Avengers where they had you know honor and the the leading ladies there were wonderful, allowed to come out and kickbox and do all sorts of things. Um, I wanted to do that, by the way. <laughs> but the boys wanted to me to be in it more, more involved. They they talked to Dennis Boone and said, you know, we've got to get her involved more. And, and they did. He, he did. He involved me more. And then we would all work together on the scripts. Um, we'd stay behind occasionally on nights and say, we've got to rework this script. It isn't working properly. And let's get a bit more fun out of it. 
they we all wanted a bit more comedy. Monty Berman wasn't so keen on that because he said, oh, no, it's a drama, it's not a comedy. But the thing that's, that's caught everybody's interest in it was the fact that it did have comedy. Mm. Yeah, so I think we, we sort of won at the end. Yeah. Well, I think it's the comedy that makes it so much fun to watch now. And yes. It, you know, it's, it's, it's still just as funny. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. It's wonderful. Getting used to, uh, to Ken as the ghost. <laughs> was, a, was a trick hmm. because he he was very naughty. He would often do something which would make you, you know, go oh, and then get, oh, <laughs> up the the scene, and we'd have to start again. I'd say, don't do that. Because <laughs> you effectively had to just not react to one, sometimes more than one person in the room, even if they were moving around. Was that quite difficult? Yeah. No, you just couldn't react to him. I'd have to just be with Mike or whoever was there and not know that Ken was standing breathing down my neck or something. <laughs> and uh, and then we'd have to speak. If he was coming into a scene, you'd be saying a line and then you'd have to you'd get an, a, a, a signal and you'd have to cut and Ken would come into the scene and stand there and then you have to continue that sentence. Hmm. <laughs> so it, was, uh, it was quite a quite an art to it, hmm. but it did have, have a lot of fun. It sounds like it was a lot of fun to make, but it's it sounds yes. also that it was uh, you know it was something that you may have known was actually quite a special show, but that you were making at the time as well, quite a unique one as well. Well, we we did think that, but we didn't really think it it should be as I think slightly unique. I don't think we thought it was quite that. When you're working, you're so involved in the episodes because while you're doing one episode, you're sometimes going back and and refilming, you know, redoing another take from another episode, or you're going in and doing voicings for another one, and you're, it's constant. So you don't get a, a sense of constancy through it. So you. And we didn't start seeing it until much later on in the series. Um, you know, you, you go to the uh, uh, to the um, uh, screenings afterwards, after the day's work, to have a look. But it was just scenes that you'd been doing, so it was all bitty. And and I don't think it it there was so many series going on that at the time were quite interesting and different with the Avengers, you know, Prisoner, um, that we didn't feel it was. Anything more was just another series. And had we known, had we, gosh, had we really known about it now, we would have kept so many things. We'd have kept scripts, at least I would have, <laughs> clothing. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have merchandising. We didn't have anything in those days. Hmm. So none of this was even in our minds. And you just finished the series and thought, oh, that's a shame, you know, try to keep up with Mike and Ken occasionally and uh, went off to do the rest of your work. So it's been later on when these memorabilia shows, nostalgia shows and things have started happening that you thought, my goodness, I had no idea. And then you look at it again and you think, you know something, it really was a bit special. A lot of those shows have had 
rather unsuccessful attempts at remaking them. Uh, the, the Prisoner, mm. there was the Avengers film, uh, they attempted the Saint again. Did you watch any of the attempt at remaking Randall and Hawk Deceased? I watched the part of the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't watch any more. I don't blame you. <laughs> no, I thought that was... I don't like... Unless they're going to do something... I don't know how to, how to describe this. Um, do a remake that is... It's, a re, it's, it's not a remake. It's You can take the characters hmm. and then put them in a different setting or something. But why remake something that's been so very successful? Hmm. Um, it, it seems, and, and have it with su uh, such a different cast hmm. that they do extreme things which were very odd. And I've talked to people, or they've asked me what I thought, and oh, I, I didn't see enough of it to really go. But, um, I think that's it's a silly thing to do. Actually, you know, people try to remake Gone with the Wind on stage. They tried to make I mean, it was ridiculous. Mm. You just can't remake those wonderful classics. And I think a lot of our series of that age were classics. And certainly I think they... It's interesting because, like you talked about earlier, they're shows which are very timeless and people are coming to them every day at different ages as well you kind of can just sit down and enjoy them and it's interesting that you were you talk about how fun they are to make they're also really fun to watch as well yes yes they are yeah i've, I've watched now i've gone back because i've been given the the cds you know the things the dvds rather and um i've gone back and watched a lot of the the other you know the series and different series and things and they were terrific really were and it was fun to watch them that's what i think is, is what makes them now so popular mm. and it's kept them going and people like you talking about them <laughs> <laughs> after randall and hopkirk deceased uh, you did a lot of work in the theater in, in the west end um do you have any particular um favorite productions that you were in yes i did I did a lot of touring too. I did some in the West End and I did a lot of tours. I think one of my favorite theaters was, I liked doing The Collector because the book was wonderful and the film it was interesting to do it as a uh, theater play. I did it twice and the second time it was directed by John Neville, whom I, I loved as an actor and he was wonderful as, an, as a director. and. I enjoyed working with him on that because there was only two of us in the play. But it was a very harrowing thing to do, it really was. When I say I enjoyed it, it was the role, it was, it was the role, it was the whole concept that was um, interesting to play. It wasn't an enjoyable thing to do, hmm. but uh, it's, it's something that I, I liked. I felt I did a good job in it. Um, and another one I did was a, a play. <laughs> I really loved it. It was a play which we did on tour. We didn't do it in the West End. Um, called There Goes the Bride, which is a Ray Cooney comedy. 
And I just loved Ray Cooney comedies and got to play in them. And it was, I had this part, I was a, um, a, a figure of imagination to the actor, Tim Barrett, in the play. I was his imagination girl, dressed up in flapper costumes, you know, 20s and things like that. I had a ball, I had to dance a little bit and do all that, and it was just very funny. The play was very funny. And, and I had a ball doing this part. It wasn't, it was a feature part in it, but I just loved it. I really did. It was comedy. I loved playing comedy. And it didn't often give me comedy. Um, so I enjoyed that a lot. And then I um, play, I did again on tour, a uh, streetcar named Desire, which I always wanted to play. And I played Blanche in that. And that was, um, I just wished that I'd had much more of a rehearsal time where I could really, really go into depth in the character because it's not a character you can just do in three weeks rehearsal. But it was a dream that I had to come true that I could play this role. And again, certainly not an enjoyable one. I seem to thrive and not enjoyable. And mo a lot of the others were mystery things and murder things. And, <laughs> and they're all, some were fun, some were just, particularly on the road, were hell. But um, the, um, in the West End, I played for two and a half years in the last one, Business of Murder, with Richard Todd. And that was hard going. That was hard going. That was tough. So when you did some more Australian television in the early 80s, uh, how different was it going back to that compared to the very early days of Australian television that you'd been involved in? Oh, well, well by then, of course, they had television under control. And so it was, it was a bit like working in England. But they were still... They still weren't entirely sure. I'm Australian, but I'm not, I don't really get on very well with the Australian people in general. My family were wonderful and friends and all that, but it's a very male-oriented uh, country. It may be, may be changing now, you know, it's certainly cosmopolitan. And I just found them a little bit, they don't like people who have left Australia and going to another country and making good and going back again. They can't quite handle it. So I can't say that I had a wonderful time out there in the business. Some of it was great and I knew a lot of the people and some of them, you know, they were, they were nice. But there were a lot of times when I just, I didn't feel I was treated all that well, so I didn't enjoy it so much. But I had my family out there, and my daughter was out there, and it's a beautiful country. So it was, it was good being there. But they had improved enormously, you know, obviously. And there's masses of talent in Australia. I mean, an awful lot of people have made really big names, and they've, they've been Australian, or New Zealand, some of them. Um, you know, you could name quite a lot of movie stars who made it big who were Australian. And, um, and talent, beautiful voices, singing voices and things. 
So they've certainly got the talent out there. Um, it's just that that a lot of them still retain that chip on the shoulder, which comes from being isolated, a country that was isolated for so many years, decades, in fact, a couple of centuries. I am sure that if I went back now, I would find a much better solution. I'm sure that now they've become so, you know, it was so different back then. I've been back to see my family in the 90s, and I was stunned at how different it was. And, um, I mean, amazingly grown up. I didn't work when I was there. I'd just gone out to see, see family. So I think it would be a whole different ballgame now. Having worked in um, in shows which are as sort of fun and enjoyable as Randall and Hopkirk deceased, did you find it quite tough working on sort of grittier shows like Prisoner Cell Block H? And oh no, no, I enjoy all that. You know, we're actors, and we need to be in. Um, it's very boring if you're in the same scenario all the time. Um, you know, joyful and bright, or or the other way around. Also, I I did over the years. I did quite a lot of um, where I was uh, not a happy person or a, a, a character that was was not your happy-go-lucky, you know, Jeannie Hopkirk type character. Mm-hmm. A lot of those, and I enjoy that. And and at, at a couple of times, I actually started playing. I found I was doing too many of them. And then you want to get back and do something that's got more comedy or more a different a different character. I no, I enjoy. I just enjoy all different types of things, and each one you have to be a completely different person, and you're you're working in a different atmosphere, which can also influence the people you're working with. So it can be a more enjoyable or less enjoyable experience, but it's work. And I'm an actress and I just love working. Anyone out there wants to to ask me again? How did you get involved with the Born Free Foundation? By by, uh, just incidentally, I was in London. My husband and I both love animals and we've been um, talking about different things to do with animals and things like that. He was in uh, L.A. at the time. And I must have had a magazine, uh, um, uh, an animal magazine, and there was a, a piece in it saying that there was a workshop being done, I've forgotten where, in London somewhere, by the Born Free Foundation. And I thought, oh. But it said from uh, with Virginia McKenna and Bill Travers. And I loved the movie, just loved that movie. And I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. Maybe I'll go along. So I didn't go to things like that usually, but I just hoied myself off there, took myself off today, and um, went through the workshop. And I heard Bill giving a most wonderful talk and Ginny giving a wonderful talk. And I saw people, what they were doing and what they were involved in, and I thought, gosh, that's interesting. And I'm thinking to myself, what could I do? You know, I, I... I'd been involved in terms of you give some money for donations or you might write a letter or something. That was about it for me. That's all I'd done. And somehow at this workshop, it got me fired up. And I thought, you know, I'm an actress. I can talk. I could do talk because they'd be 
said about giving talks and things, you know, people gave talks, but I could give talks. And <laughs> I don't know where I got the courage from, but I hijacked Bill Travers and I said to him, uh, could I, I, I introduced myself and told him I was in the business and everything and, and uh, I said my husband would be interested too and then proceeded to sort of talk non-stop for about the next half hour about what I could do and what I thought his, the Bonfi sounded wonderful and poor man. <laughs> At the end, he said, I want you to meet um, Virginia. So he took me to meet, meet her and that was the start of it. I said, I'd like to do some talks. So they took me on and mentored me. Eventually, I started giving talks at schools and clubs and different things. My husband became involved. He and Bill got on very well together, and they got involved in aspects of the thing. And we're very huge. We did for about nine years, I think, did some hands-on volunteer work with um, um, captive animal zoos and things, which we, we absolutely hate. And... Um, and because we were traveling a bit, we could, over here in America, um, we went to several zoos over here and looked at the conditions and sent back reports and talked to people in the zoos and, and, and in a couple of times managed to get a couple of things improved. And then once, uh, once we left and, and uh, went to New York to live, we were up, upstate in, on top of a mountain. We weren't really near enough to anything to uh, mm. to do what we've been doing, but we're still in touch. I've just recently been in touch with Ginny again. You know, I see her when I go to London and things. But I think it's an absolutely fabulous foundation. I really do. They do marvellous things. We heard that you've been writing your memoirs. Yeah, I've been writing my memoirs for about four years. <laughs> It's actually on track now, and I think um, I think it's going to be released later this year. We've got a publisher, and um, do you know Rick Davy? Because Rick's publishing my book, and he's a lovely man. So we're in constant communication at the moment, backwards and forwards, with all sorts of questions and bits of typed stuff, and <laughs> I've done that. And my husband's editing. There are photographs all over the place while I'm sort of going through them, trying to find what what should go in and, and not. And boy, I don't think I think if I'd realised how much work was there there was in this, I don't think I'd have started it, honestly. <laughs> Never Oh my gosh, not about yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very tough. It's very tough. You have to um, uh, you have to go way, way back into your life and it's not always uh, happy. So it's dredging up memories that are sometimes wonderful and sometimes not so an up and down happy painful business. But yes, I'm, I'm hopefully releasing it this year. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful talking to you. And you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Yes. Information information. So we'd like to thank Annette for joining us. Um, she was really wonderful in The Prisoner and even more wonderful in Random Hawk Act Deceased, uh, which as I mentioned earlier is one of my favourites. 
And it was really wonderful to talk to her about so many of the other things that she's done as well that maybe people are, are less aware of. Yeah, and it's really exciting that later in the year um, her autobiography will be out as well. Because I think, yes. I think you know, as you can get a sense of in that uh, chat we had with her, I think she has lots of really interesting stories to tell and uh, has you know has interacted with so many fantastic people um, during her career and has you know, herself done so much wonderful work on stage and screen. Yep. So we're almost at the end of our episode now, but it wouldn't be an episode of the Tally Ho without a news roundup from Rick Davey of the Mutual website. So take it away, Rick. This is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website, www.theunmutual.co.uk, with all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. The Not a Number, a Patrick McGowan retrospective event, which took place at Elstree Studios on Saturday 23rd of June, was a huge success. Special guests included actress Jane Merrow and actress Vera Day and directors John Huff, Alex Cox and Alvin Rakoff, plus screenings of rare material, specially conducted interviews with Susan Hampshire and Fenella Fielding, displays, signings and much more welcomed over 150 people. A DVD of the event will be available later in the year and specially produced brochures and trading cards are available to purchase from the Unmutual website. The team behind the Elstree events have announced their next event and early bird tickets are now available for a celebration of ITC taking place at Elstree Studios on November the 17th, 2018. Tickets are priced at £30 with a £4 discount for tickets purchased prior to July the 14th. In other event news, pricing has also been set for the Eternal Village event taking place in Seattle in September with early bird tickets also available. Check out the Unmutual website for more details of the event, which includes a special guest Q&A and signing session with none other than actress Annette Andre. Other events have also been announced for 2018, including screenings of Prisoner episodes in Birmingham in the UK and Buffalo in the US. Leslie Glenn's Prisoner Mind Mash event is also set to return for autumn 2018. All news will be available on the next Tally Ho podcast. The audio drama company Big Finish have announced that the last episode of the third series of their The Prisoner Reimagining is to be called The End. Is this the end for the series? Time will tell, says writer and producer Nicholas Briggs. In other Big Finish news, the company have announced details of their audio drama series of the classic Callan TV series, a series which has drawn parallels to The Prisoner and included input from George Markstein, stars Ben Miles, Frank Skinner and Nicholas Briggs in an audio reimagining, with cameos by Big Finish's number six, Mark Elstob. And finally, congratulations to Mark Beaumont, who has beaten the 127-year-old British record for riding a penny farthing 21.9 miles in an hour. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Be seeing you. Thank you, Rick. And also not just for the news, but also for organising uh, the wonderful Elstree event a couple of weeks back, celebrating the life of Patrick McGowan. And really exciting to hear that there's some more things planned uh, for the future as well. Um, notably the uh, the ITC event, which is happening in November this year. Yep. With Annette Andre, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks again to Rick and Annette for joining us. And we hope you've enjoyed our episode all about It's Your Funeral. Next time, we're going to be taking on a change of mind. Yes. And as always, we'd like to thank everyone who listens to the podcast for 
all your words of encouragement, your comments. Um, I mean, that really keeps the podcast kind of going when we know that people are listening and mm. that people are sometimes watching it for the first time or just uh, using this as a chance to look back over the show. And it's great that we're kind of part of that experience as well. It's really fun talking to people all over the world who are watching the show and interacting with them and finding out about all their perspectives on it. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, there are several ways to do it. Uh, we have our website, www.timeforcakesnail.com, and you can leave uh, comments in the episode notes that we put out every time uh, we post a new episode of the podcast. We're on Facebook. Uh, we have the page Time for Cakes and Ale. We're on Twitter, at TFCAA. And of course, if you get your podcast through an app or through iTunes, you can subscribe for Time for Cakes and Ale. And um, please do think about leaving a review because it really helps us to get the word out about the podcast to other fans. But for now, until the next episode in a couple of weeks, all about a change of mind from the Tally Ho podcast. Be, be seeing, seeing you. you.